Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 926 with Neil Bodenheimer. You know, it gets back to this idea of creating win-wins, right? Because like, I want to know someone's goals and what makes them tick so I can help make sure that they're in a good place to number one, do the work, but I also want them to be happy. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, Profit, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And I have to say, I haven't come across a restaurateur using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communications, tasks, tips, and more all in one place. And because you are restaurant unstoppable, listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. I don't need to tell you that it's harder than ever right now to be a restaurateur. The cost of goods are going up. Labor expenses are going up. People don't want to work in the industry. Anybody who had experience has, has gone on to different verticals or different industries. And we are just stuck with a lot of people who are very green. And how, how do we increase sales if nobody knows how to sell? Well, you empower them with the right tools. And one tool out there that you need to know about is called S. RV, which stands for Study Restaurant Variety, created by Roger Bodwin from Restaurant Rockstars, a name I'm sure you recognize for his multiple appearances on the show, and his co-founder and co-creator, Zaylin Jacobson, who you'll be working with. This is a tool that will help your team memorize your menu, your uh, your culture, uh, everything, anything you need to train them, your entire training manual is now in an app and accessible anywhere. And really what it is, is an interactive learning tool. And it's a great way to invest in your team and to make them feel valued. There's a lot of data supporting that. This is how the next generation of professionals prefer to learn. So if you need a tool out there to empower your staff, to train your staff, uh, to, to give them the knowledge they need to be sales stars, then check out srvnow.com click the link that says request a demo and 
that will bring you to a page where you fill out your information. The very last field, make sure you let them know that Restaurant Unstoppable sent you their way. They will pay us a commission of $1,500 if you use that link and you, you sign up with them. And I just have to say thank you in advance. We're trying to take Restaurant Unstoppable to the next level. And this is one way we can do that by just spreading the word about these tools. And uh, I believe in what they're doing over there. So you're in good hands. Uh, thank you in advance. All right. Do it now. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, founder of CureCo, which consists of Cure Cane and Table, Val's Pay Shows, and Daphine Plus. He's also the co-chair of Tales of the Cocktail Foundation, Neil Bodenheimer. Neil, are you feeling unstoppable today? I am feeling unstoppable today because... The one thing that everybody should know is that the only thing that can stop me is me. And that's the way it is for everybody. I love it. And you have to be unstoppable with all you got going on, man. That's so impressive. I'm so excited to dive into your story to find out how you got to where you are today. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? So I've been thinking about this. I thought I was like tossing and turning last night thinking about what what I wanted to talk about here. But I think that the thing that I think is most impactful is that positions are replaceable. People are not positions are replaceable. People are not. I love that really dissect it though. And and tell us why that's your mantra. So it's, it's, it's something that I, 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 I once had a boss who shall remain nameless, who used to like to say, everybody's replaceable. And I always hated it. And it just drove me insane because I hated to feel replaceable. Yeah, because I felt like what I brought to a job was different than anybody else would bring to the job. And that's not better or worse. It just is. And I feel like everybody is an individual. Everybody is unique and everybody brings a unique skill set to a position. And so the position is the position. The people are not replaceable. The position is replaceable. Mm. Mm, I like that. And listening to you talk, it reminds me of something I like to echo often. And whenever I do echo this, I kind of give myself a little bit of a cringe, but I think that it's, it's an important message. And that's that you want to create uh, system dependent operations, not people dependent operations. But the truth of the matter is you need both. You need both. You and need I, both. <laughs> well, and, and, and I think that it is, I think systems are, are, are important. And, yeah. and, and look, I, I, I struggle with systems, Yeah. but I, but I can tell you that, and I, I, mean, I mean, we try and we're constantly trying to make our systems better. But in the end, I think that what is so wonderful about this business is the people that we get to work with mm. and the individual nature of the people that choose to work in hospitality. And there is something that I, I, I revel in it. It's and why I do what I do. It's, yeah. It's why I love this industry and it's why I dedicated my life to learning about people in this industry. And, and I just think it, it, when you, when you just think about positions and not about the people that fill those positions, that it, it just, it, I just find it completely disrespectful. Yeah. And, and I think that, that there's so many wonderful, just like bright shining stars in this business and personalities and, you know, to quote Danny Meyer, 51 percenters, they're just like a lot of beautiful people that are drawn to this business and, when we don't acknowledge what they bring to their position, it, it I, I find it, I just think it's, it's disrespectful to who they are. Yeah. Great way to get this thing started. Thank you so much for going there. And where does it make sense to start sharing your story? Because 
I know from doing the research I have, you're from New Orleans, your family was here in the 18th century, that you've been around for a while. I know you so, went to New York, but was there anything happening before going to New York? So my family came right around the turn of the century okay. um, to the New Orleans area, yeah. and they... Um, so my dad's side, you know, without boring the hell out of your listeners, my dad's side um, came over in the 1840s into Louisiana, and then they kind of shipwrecked, which is insane, in in Bossier City, which no one wants to claim ever. Where is Bossier That's City like about? right outside of Shreveport. Okay. And so, and then to make a long story short, they like started an insurance company up in, in Bossier City and Shreveport area. And then, Smart family. and then one of the, uh, and then one of in my, in my dad's grandfather was like, Hey, uh, there's not enough business here for, for, you know, for, Hey brother, there's not enough business here for both of us. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go to new Orleans. And then and my family's been in new Orleans ever since. Nice. I mean, what a great place to land though. Like, thank you ancestors. Yeah, I mean, it is it's it's an amazing city. I mean, there's an, I've had the the great fortune to be able to uh, I spent a year of my life basically traveling when I was in my 20s and 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 the thing that I realized by traveling is that there is no place on earth like New Orleans. I've literally said that and Sam can vouch for me at least 10 times in on this trip. I was like there's no place else like this in the world. Yeah, it is it and it's the kind of place that you can live a lifetime and there are so many things that you can, that you won't uncover. And, and that place. to me is like, really, it's fascinating. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've, I've, I've lived in bigger cities. I've lived in, in places that were, that, that had that same feeling, but this is just a much smaller place. Mm-hmm. It is just a very rich, yeah. rich culture and community. I mean, it's a place where I, I walk around when I was going for my morning walks, like everyone will say good morning to you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I made it a point to start doing it. I just started saying good morning to everyone, but everyone's just so polite and, and it's a special mm-hmm. place for sure. It really is. Uh, so did you work in restaurants like in high school or in college? Like what, what drew you to the restaurant industry? Well, you know, funny you should ask Eric. <laughs> um, so I actually got my first job in hospitality um, in and luckily this is a podcast so you guys can't see how physically imposing I am. Uh, but I, I got my first job as a bouncer, um, when I was 18. And what are you, so like a ninja, do you know yeah, some kind of secret it, it, fighting well, method that we don't know? <laughs> so what was, so what's so funny about it is that, you know, I was like 18 and I played football, but like very small school in high school and it was like not. So I probably thought I was like bigger and tougher than I was. <laughs> but what I didn't realize is that, you know, back, back in, I'm, 45 years old. So I'm on, I'm, I'm on the old side of this business at this point. Um, and what, what I didn't realize, so it was 18 to drink in Louisiana in, until I was like 19 or 20. And so Oof. what I didn't realize is that we were actually there because we would bring in our friends. And so we were in, in essence promoters, not really bouncers. Okay. So it's, that's a business kind of like a business lesson a little bit, but I think there's truth to the idea that, um, you hire people, they're going to bring a certain clientele because people, is there truth to that? Do you think? Yeah, of course. I mean, and and that gets back to this idea of, of of individuals. Right. And so like anytime, like downstairs, a cure, we're upstairs. Um, if you, you know, if we bring in a new, a new bartender, like, there are certain people that come to the bar that aren't going to mesh with them. There are certain people that come to the bar that are going to be, that are really going to get along with them. And so like your, your regular guests do kind of cycle in and cycle out based on personalities that are, 
that are working in a place. And, and, and that's actually natural in the bar business and the restaurant business as well, that, you know, people, you know, their, their lives change and, and, and their habits change. And so like, that's, we have to constantly be creating new relationships. Mm, Yeah. So you, you start in the industry as a, a bouncer, obviously it didn't stop there. So what, what was, what was going on? What, what appealed to you? What sucked you in? Well, I mean, I think that that first job, um, really kind of, it was so fun and it was like, so it was just invigorating. And what then, was fun about it? Well, I think that just being, meeting, you know, I mean, meeting new people mm. all the time. Um, I, I loved working on a team. Um, I loved having a common goal. I mean, there was just so many things that I, that I loved about it. And then I, and then I went off to college and then, and then, and then I took a year off of college. Um, I, I kind of, so I, so I went to college and promptly failed out of college. And, <laughs> I almost did. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, I may have set a land record for, <laughs> for, for, for lowest GPA. I had a 1.18 my first semester. I, I may have had a lower GPA. Than okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and I and I had a, I had a great time, but I wasn't ready. Yeah. Right. And then and so I scrapped that year. I came home, and and my parents were like, "Look, you got to get a job." Mm. You know, I was 18 years old, and I was like, so I ended up getting a job on a on a beer truck as a helper, which was a an objectively terrible job. <laughs> uh, you know, I think I made like five fifty an hour, and the day it was like twelve hour days, just like hauling heavy stuff everywhere. And I, you know, I remember talking to, to a driver and he was training to take on a new job and he had, he'd been a bread, bread delivery driver. And he was, he was moving to the alcohol side, to the beer side. And he's like, yeah, you know, I, I was telling him how I had been in college and he was like, oh, that's great. You know, my daughter's at, at, uh, at, at LSU, I worked to put her through school. And I just remember being like, this guy, I'm making five fifty an hour. I don't know how much this guy's making. And I'm like barely able to make it Yeah, like, and he is working his butt off to put his daughter through college. Like how in the world could I have squandered this? And it was like really an eye opening moment for me. And then, and, but I was very lucky that a friend, his cousin worked at, um, at one of Ralph Brennan's restaurants that no okay. longer exists. And, um, and his cousin needed a host. And I was like, does it involve lifting heavy things <laughs> for 12 hours? No, I'm in. Nice. And what a great restaurant group to be a part of out of the yeah, gates too. What, it was wonderful. Set a standard, right? Yeah. And, and it just, you know, once again, you're, you know, you're part of a team. I felt like I had real responsibility. Um, I enjoyed talking to people. I enjoyed meeting people and I'm not, an overly outgoing guy. I'm, I'm like, I'm kind of equal parts extrovert and introvert. Mm, ambivert, I think is the technical it, term. Is, is, is yeah. that what it's called? Yeah. An ambivert? Yeah. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. Yeah. I'm right there too. I think there's a lot of people in this industry that are right there because we tend to be emotional and thoughtful, but we also get energized by people, but we need, need to find that balance of me. And, and I also need, like, does that sound familiar? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it was nice for me to have like an icebreaker with so many people, so many people that, and I just felt like I was able to like talk to anybody in that job. And in my normal life, I couldn't talk to anybody mm. and it, uh, and in some way I just felt so, so empowered doing that. Yeah. And, and I, and, and, and it just, it just drew me in. 
And so, and so eventually I went back to college. I went to, I ended up going to Austin community college, which was a great place for me to land. And then I went to university of Texas at Austin. So Austin, that was a different time back then in Austin. It's not the city it was today or is today. It was certainly was not, not to date you. I (laughs) I think I've already dated myself. (laughs) Um, so it was, I started school in 97 and I finished in 2000. I finished in, I went from failing out of school to finishing school in three years. Um, and when I left in 2000, it was 22 years later. That city is a whole hell of a lot different. Oh my God. Were you working on sixth street? Uh, I was not, I was going to sixth street. Okay. Yeah, I bet you were <laughs> <laughs> crazy times, man. I lived six months in Austin and even from the time I was there, like in 19 or 2018 is when I started going there. It's exploded in that time, mm-hmm. the past six years, it's, it's or four years. It's, it's crazy. still, it still has some of the same DNA. And I think yeah. that that is the thing that uh, I'm, it makes me happy because like, it's easy to see all the change, but I do see some of the stuff. Um, well, you know, when I was there last, it just, it still feels like Austin to me. Yeah. And, and that is there. I mean, there are parts of traffic's don't. worse. The traffic is worse, but the traffic <laughs> was bad back then too. So people would complain about it 22 years ago. Yeah. Um, but it, it, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's very different. I still love it. Um, you know, I'd love to get, to get back to Austin one day. Cause mm-hmm. I really, really do like it, but I also love New Orleans too. Yeah. So w- at what point are you like, this is my career. This is what I want to do. This is my path. what did you go to school for? So, uh, so I went to school for history. Okay. And, uh, which is basically qualifies me to, uh, to qualify me to be a bartender. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, w- I love history now, man. I wish yeah. I had the same passion for it when I was younger. Uh, it- it's so eye opening. but I think that the answer to our future is in our past. It's in studying where we came from and how we got here, which is kind of the format of the show is wh- where did you come from? How'd you get here and looking yeah. from the past? Right. I mean, that's exactly it. I mean, you can't, if you're not learning lessons from the past, how are you supposed to be prepared for the future? Mm, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, we are, I mean, humans are the same in every generation. You know, we may have different toys and different technologies, but like we're still, we're still the same beings and and we make the same mistakes. You know, there's a reason why you can read Shakespeare and the same shit happens today. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's crazy. I mean, it's, it's, I think we're getting better at it. I think we live in a time now where there's so much information at people's fingertips to learn more about human behavior and why we are the way we are. And we're just, we're sharing information about how to understand Mm -hmm. yourself. We know more about the human body and the human brain and the human Mm -hmm. behavior than ever before. And more people know about it than ever before. So we can catch ourselves when we start doing stupid human things. Or like, that's a stupid human thing. I need to stop doing that. But more people are aware of that than ever before. Yeah. And I definitely think that awareness is the really important word there is that we are aware of our behaviors, uh, good and bad. And, and, and I think that that is, you know, hopefully that's the way that we, uh, that we save ourselves from, I think it's going to be it. Sorry to interrupt, but keep going from what, from, from what we're going through politically. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I think that, you know, you have, you know, without getting into politics on this, you know, on your show, I think it's important that people talk about politics personally, but in it, but it doesn't, but politics are in restaurants, they're in foundations, they're mm-hmm. everywhere. I mean, yeah. I think that you have so many people who are in the, who, who are in the middle politically that are not, that are not vocal. Oh, it's the overwhelming majority, but all you hear about exactly. Is on the, and when we, and when we make decisions, 
around unity, about around unity, and around the middle, the decisions seem to be pretty, pretty healthy. And when we make decisions at the extremities for the people that are loudest, uh, it tends to, to to not be that. I mean, and this is from 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 two ambiverts sitting here. Yeah. There are a lot of people in this world that don't that don't want to yell and scream and 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 talk about the world. They're not wired that way. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that their that their opinions are any less valid. Well, I think it's important for I think podcasts are a crucial tool for humanity right now because mm-hmm. it's one of the few outlets that doesn't have algorithms just tearing it apart. Mm-hmm. And most people, especially young people, get their information from social platforms, yeah. and that's so divisive. It's so bad. And mm-hmm. I I I put and this is this is your story, right? This is we're here, to, but like I I it's I find myself sometimes. Um, just like in a weird place where do I, do I encourage more restaurants to be on social media and to use social media as a tool to promote their businesses? Or is there a social responsibility to encourage people to get the part of my language, the fuck off these platforms and to start talking to people across the table from them. And you want to talk, go for it. I want to tear. No, I'm like, I, I want to give you like a, a amen. Hallelujah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so, but I think, to 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 push that forward that is why restaurant work and bar work and hospitality work is so important mm-hmm. face-to-face relationships there are there is no substitution for them what we do it's important and it's important because it makes people feel human yeah and it creates connection yeah there's two books i think everybody in the restaurant or bar industry should read and it's america walks into a bar and uh drunk are you familiar with those books? No, I'm not. It's, they're like anthropological approaches to alcohol and the evolution and, and its and its impact on humanity and society through time. Oh, it's man. fascinating, dude. And it, it gives you perspective of the role restaurants and bars play. Like mm-hmm. we were the internet in the 17 and 1600s. Like yeah. you went to the pub to get your news. You, to, you went. To get you, your you went for your news. You also went for your politics, socialization, I mean, like, your entertainment, booze, everything. booze, and politics were like intertwined. And that's the way it should be in person, mm-hmm. talking, listening, communicating, arguing, hearing perspective, and that's okay. But I feel like when you when you do it in different mediums, it doesn't have the same effect. I agree. Um, and and this is just a, a a quick aside. Like, you know, I mean, the pandemic was hard for for everybody, no matter what business you were in or what you did um, professionally, personally, it doesn't matter whether you didn't do anything. It was hard. And it really, you know, just trying to keep restaurants open and, and, and the family together and safe and healthy and your loved ones safe. And I just was like really depleted. And I, and I would go, you know, when, when I could travel, I would go travel and, and nothing, nothing would fill me up yeah. in it at all. No, I'm loving this conversation, dude. I really am. 20 minutes into this thing, you're still in college. That's how much I'm loving this conversation. <laughs> uh, so uh, where where do we want to go? Uh, what's next? Do, do Wait, you want to finish a thought? I do. Yeah. And 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 so the th- nothing would fill me up. And finally, right before Tales of the Cocktail this year, I was like, why do we do this? Like, it's been three years since we've had an in-person thing. Like, it's like, who are we doing this for anymore? And then we did the week, week plus for me. And, uh, and I left and my heart was so full and it was the only thing that I felt like could fill me back up. 
and I had no idea and I didn't realize it. And I just goes to, it really underscored for me that community and people, people together, that is the solution for all of the problems in the world. Yeah. Um, one more point I want to make in, uh, 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 the founder of Facebook, Zuckerberg, was recently interviewed by Joe Rogan. I know it's a sensitive name. You can't say Joe Rogan. Some people get upset. Well, yeah, in the world of podcasting. Good <laughs> yeah. Lord. Um, but it was a fascinating interview. And Zuckerberg said multiple times that the holy grail is of, of, of uh, virtual reality or the meta is making people feel like they're in the same room together. Um, but here's the thing. I don't think they'll ever achieve it. Because even if you feel physically like like you're, you're visually your, your mind, like there's optical illusions you can play to make your mind think that you're next mm-hmm. to somebody, but there's so much going on that we are just starting to realize. Uh, I, I, I echo this a lot in the show, but your heart, there's evidence that suggests that your heart literally in, radiates energy. In Seds, in Seds book. Yes. Yeah. He was on the show. We talked. I know. About I listened. Oh man. So great. There's that. There's also chemical pheromones that are happening. The body language. I don't know if you're going to get the same level of body language that facial, the, the facial reaction. It, I mean, these are bi- like biologically yeah. coded things yes. that humans know how to do. You don't You don't have to be taught how to do it. They're, they're there. Yeah. And so like, I don't understand how that's ever supposed to be recreated in virtual. And maybe I don't have the imagination for it, but for where we are right now, we still need each other I think they're in get the same close room. The visual stuff as time progresses and as technology progresses, I think they'll get close with the visual, like mm-hmm. facial stuff, but the other stuff, the energy, the pheromones, the, the, yeah. all those like little subtle cues, like you can't replace that. And mm-hmm. back to the point I was making earlier, like we're learning more and more about that. And we also are learning more and more about what, drives people and what people need and really mm-hmm. what people need is to be happy and the thing that makes people the happiest so what you just alluded to is each other yeah i mean it, it is and that it's like the, the you know it depends do you want to like have like the you know the sart view of the world where you know hell is other people or do you want to believe that you know that heaven is each other you know is other people i would argue that given what we've gone through since since the spring of 2020 that Heaven is other people. It's when we're not in the same room that it feels like hell. Yeah. And I've, I've said it before and I'll say it again. There's nothing in the world that I love and hate more than people. I love mm-hmm. people. But I know. At the same time, they, they drive me crazy. And, uh, and, but I, there's no. I think you're in the majority. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what happens after Austin? Are you working in the restaurant industry in Austin? So over the summers and I, and, and, and I, and so I graduated in three years. So I was like, I'm going to like take a full like extra full course course load and like really try and do it, try and make up for some lost time. And so I did not work except for during the summers when I was in summer school. And, and I would work at a, there's a restaurant that was called uh, Hudson's on the bend. Um, and I think it still exists. And it was out by, by Lake Travis and it was, it was wild game. And they had all of these sauces that they had made that were, that were kind of uh, engineered around wild game but they were really cool. And, and so they had, they had kind of created a, a, a CPG around the sauces. And so I would go and I would set up a thing in grocery stores and I would talk to random people, which, you know, if I had something to talk about, I kind of loved. And so I would went to, to grocery stores all around Austin and, and I would set up and sample sauces for people and hope that maybe they bought them. 
Mm. You're saying sauces or sausage? Sauces. Sauces. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Game that's my based sauces. Yeah. That's my it's my New Orleans accent. I'm no, sorry. No, you're fine. I just want to make sure I heard you right. Um, so you're you're continuing in the vertical of food. You're not working in restaurants, but you're still Correct. close to food. Uh, at, what, at what point are you thinking to yourself, "This is what I want to do. This is my career." So we can fast forward a lot of years. So I, I was lucky enough while while I spent a year of my life traveling that. But then my brother and I stopped in Malaysia and mm. we found this like really incredible place. I, I was supposed to go. I wanted to go to law school. So I what, thought, what I thought I were you traveling from what age to what age? So God, I think I was 24. Um, so it was right after, I think it was like shortly after school, after I, after I graduated from, from we'll call it 22 ish or you took a year off though. Yeah. I mean, I took a year off and then. Yeah, well, yeah, I think well, it was like twenty three, twenty four. Got it. Um, so, so my brother and I took a trip around the world. I wanted to go to law school. So cool. I put all these applications in, and I was like, "Let's go!" Yeah. And and he was he was in tech, he was in tech, and it was like that first bubble in tech. And he was like, "Yeah, I might come too." <laughs> <laughs> and so we uh, and so we went around the world. It was supposed to be a five month trip. It turned into over ten months of travel, uh, and then we stopped. After I didn't get into the law schools that I wanted to, we stopped and we uh, opened a little restaurant in, on a beach in Malaysia in the Printhian Islands. You opened a restaurant on the beach? Well, it was like a snack bar. And then my brother, so my brother used to cook for a living before he was in tech. And I had done, you know, a little hosting and bouncing. Yeah. And uh, so we were like, well, let's, I'll run front of house. You do back of house. And it was like a little like beach cafe thing. I can't even imagine the legal. I mean, I'd spent time in Thailand, and I know how hard it can be to start a business if you're not from that part of the world. So there, so the, so the, so it was attached to a dive shop, and the Got owners it. were were Malay. Okay, and so, so you were it, operating under. Yeah, there. it was. It was like a. It was like a pre pop up pop up proto pop up. Yeah, were the were the regulations and stuff you had to jump? Like I know it's pretty loose over there. It was pretty loose. Yeah. We were they. We're excited about us selling the beer because it was it was a um, I guess there was reli- there were religious police that would come to the island, and so they were excited about two American guys selling the beer. Um, and but unfortunately, what we didn't know is that so we had a deal where we would keep the food profit and they would keep the beer profit. Uh, that's the good part. Yeah, and uh, and and first so, lesson, I mean, but, but it didn't matter. I mean, like we were. I mean, we just wanted to be able to like support ourselves and live there. Yeah. Um, but it was certainly, we realized there was a lot more profit in the beer after that. Yeah. I mean, spending just a little time in Southeast Asia, what stood out to me was the community aspect, the, just how communal things are. Like, was there anything like that? Was there an impression that you think influenced you? I mean, this was like a big, like backpacker spot. Yeah. And so like on some level, like, the people that lived on the island like kind of fucking hated us <laughs> and then and and it's not just when i say us i mean like all the backpackers yeah um and then on some level they like loved the fact that there were people that were spending money on the, island. the economy yeah um and so it was it it felt warm and cold at different points if that if, if yeah. that makes sense no i can relate to that for sure um so I mean, any other things that's worth pulling to the surface before we move on? Well, okay. So, so we did that. Um, I, you know, I, I was, I was traveling. Nine eleven happened. Mm. Um, 
I really wanted to come back home after that. I was like, it just kind of took all the joy out of traveling. And so I came home, but I really had always wanted to, to move to New York. So right after 9-11, well, I'm, I'm, sounds like disaster keeps bringing you home, huh? It's, it's, it's an unfortunate quality. Yeah, we'll learn more about that later. And, and so, I, I, so, I, so I moved to New York, like right after, like within a month after 9-11, I was, I was home, moved to New York, needed a job, and I got a job at the Atlantic Grill on the Upper East Side. It's no longer there, but it was a BR Guest restaurant, which was uh, a company that Steve Hansen owned. Um, and I kind of stumbled in there, and I said, look, I've got some experience. And they said, well, in typical New York fashion, they said, well, do you have New York experience? <laughs> I said, I don't, but I'm willing to learn. Yeah. And, um, and so, they, so they hired me, and I guess they saw something in me, and, and I started as a server and uh, certainly made plenty of mistakes. I, I mean, I, got pl- I have some, some very funny stories from those times. But I will tell you that I really do think that the, the guest on the Upper East Side might be one of the hardest guests in the world. And I think it laid a foundation for me in hospitality that has served me for the rest of my life. So how did that galvanize you? How did that make you stronger? Well, I just think I just saw so many, so many situations, so many guest relations situations that were, I mean, you, I mean, you could, you could have, I could have written, could could write a book on it. I mean, it's like, there was just so much. Yeah. And that it, I feel like on some level, I saw so much more at, at a young age then it, it would it would take you so much longer in other markets to see mm. that many interactions, that many weird situations, that many strange ass people doing weird things. I, I'm so tempted to pull back a layer on this and to get a story. If well, you're I, to go there. I mean, well, uh, well, if, if you got the time. <laughs> I mean, I'll get. I'm, I'm not going to give you any guest stories. I'll give you a story about when I started. About when I probably started and almost got fired. Um, so we. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, you go through you go through a training when you start most restaurants, and so I was I was training, and it was a very busy brunch. I mean, it was it did a brisk brisk brunch, and there was a server that had been there for forever, and you know, all the glasses are going. You know, there it was you know, bloody screwdrivers, all the all the you know mimosas. They were all included in the brunch, so you know, it was just a free for all. Coffee <laughs> cups, like everything's like just pulling out of the server station in like record time. So you'd go get there and you'd be like, man, I like, I'll put it in whatever. And of course, like the wine glasses were the things that, that did not go immediately. And so this very experienced server is like, here, here are six bloody Marys, put them in wine glasses. And is like, bring it over to that six stop. And I'm like, all right, here we go. Got this. I'm going over, I'm, you know, toting this thing. Like I'm toting the rock, you know, <laughs> just like, I get over to the table and I start unloading them and one of them just crashes and hits the tray, you know, so the wine glass goes down, hits the tray and just is like a bomb went off oh, a bloody Mary over this table of like 80 year olds. Yeah. And if you want to visualize what happens, put a spoon under the faucet and see what <laughs> happens. That's what happens. That is what I can see. Happening. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'll ever forget it. And I like look down. And this guy has got a like glob of horseradish <laughs> in his ear, and I and, and I just am like, oh my, I'm so I'm so sorry. And I go and I and I go and I That's go to my manager. Oh, <laughs> uh, it was. It, I mean, it was. You couldn't have every tomato sauce. It's like you couldn't you couldn't draw it up any worse. <laughs> and so, how far into this was were you working 
were you? The oh, new? it was it was during my training. Oh man, that's uh, I mean, worse. I'm shocked. And they, they still hired me. you. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we ended up going. So I so I go over and go find my manager and who I who I became friends with after, and he was wonderful. And 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 I and I go and I'm like, hey, Danny. I spilled some Bloody Mary on this table. I spilled a little bit of Bloody Mary on this table. And he and he goes over and he takes a look at it. And he's, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, we'll take care of your meal. And he comes back over and he just goes, little? <laughs> <laughs> but it was it, it, there was always something going on at that restaurant, I can assure you. That's great, man. Thank you for getting into that. That's a good story. Uh, so at what point, it's, at this point, I still feel like you're not committed like in your mind, this isn't what you're you're gonna do. Were you a little deflated when you didn't get into the? the was that a hard time for you when you didn't no. get into the law school? No, okay. because I don't think uh, you know. I think that there's what, and this is one thing that I think is is important about this part of the story uh, of my story, is that there is what in you think you should be doing in the world, and there's what you think you should be doing, and in what the world. the world thinks you should be doing. Exactly, <laughs> and so I, I like I. There, there were times where I would do things for other people and there were times where I'd do things for myself. Mm. And I found that invariably when I did things for myself, I was more successful. And when I was doing things because I thought other people thought I should be doing it, I was not as successful. You know, mm. Arizona, I studied finance. I didn't want to go to any of the classes. I didn't go. I decided to study something I wanted to study when I went to Texas. I studied history. I loved it. I wanted to go to class all the time. I wanted to do the work. Mm-hmm. And... So once again, I start kicking around this idea, maybe I'll go to law school. So somewhere in between Atlantic Grill, I go and I'd move to New York to work in advertising. I go, I get a job in advertising. I'm tracking ads. It is the most boring shit in the world. I can imagine. You know, you are like, okay, you know, and in Tulsa, did this, did this ad run? Was it preempted? And you're just like trying, this was like before automation. So I'm tracking this thing. And I was like coming from a very exciting restaurant. I was like, who the fuck would do this? <laughs> right? I'm sorry. I have a terrible mouth. I'm just going to apologize. There's a reason why this podcast is marked explicit. It's because <laughs> we're in the restaurant industry. People talk. So, I, I'm, you know, immediately I'm like, after three months, I'm like, I want to do this. Hey, I go back to Atlantic Grill. I'm like, hey, I really want to bartend. And they were like, okay, well, if you come back, you can bartend. You know, you'll serve and you'll bartend. And I got to learn from my friend Vincent Favela who's still a really good friend of mine. And I, I consider Vincent one of my really great mentors. He's a, he's a peer and a mentor. And, and we were, and I was lucky that, that Atlantic grill will really be our guest hired. One of the first like corporate mixologists mm-hmm. and his name is Eben Clem and he's still a friend and mentor to this day as well. And, and Eben came in and we decided to do the, as they looked at where they were going to start to implement cocktail you know real kind of classically driven cocktail programs they went to the upper east side because you know i mean it's kind of like here when we did Mm -hmm. cure like there was a tradition of drinking classic cocktails and so that's where they started and i was lucky enough to be on the bar when he started and it really really lit um you know lit a spark in in a fire in me to 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 do this work and that was what was it exactly that lit that that lit that fire what was the appeal so, I mean, I, I loved, you know, I don't think I, I, I don't think, I think it's pretty apparent that I really love being around people and I love, and I may be an, an ambivert, but I'm, but I, but I get energy from other people and, 
in, in the energy of a restaurant and in, in the excitement of a restaurant. Like I love that. Mm. But you know, the, the, it was when I got behind the bar and I started to, to get to, to play with so many of these beautiful brands and just taste them. And they all had their own history and their own story. And there was so there, there was, there's so much to learn. It's not just a taste. It's just, it's a, the history of it. And yeah. Some, it's somebody a story. Who, and like, passionate about history. Yeah. And, and so in some ways, like, I mean, it's like every brand, particularly in the alcohol business, there's plenty of bullshit in it. Mm-hmm. Right. But there are some brands that have like amazing histories mm-hmm. that really tell the history of the world. And so to me, like every bottle was a new, was a new historical discovery. And it really, really excited me. And then as Eben started talking about classic cocktails, every cocktail had had a history and really talked about a place and a time. And it when for me, it was just like it was so exciting, mm. and 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 I, and I just loved it, and oh, I still do. Awesome. So this is kind of where the traction really kind of like where you catch a, a foothold on the industry. And Correct. You're starting to get sucked in. Mm-hmm. Um, What's going through your mind as far as professionally? You're still at Atlantic Grill, right? Still at Atlantic Grill. How long were you there? God, I don't even remember, but I was there for years. Okay. I mean, and, and I kept that job even after, you know, I tried to do, I, I went and worked at a few other bars and restaurants kind of while I did that. And n- none of them of any real note, but I, I just remember being like, well, you know, actually I like the systems here. I like how it's run. Um, but I, I didn't love the culture. Mm. Um, I liked the culture of the specific restaurant. I didn't love the culture of the company. Okay. And, and, and w- the company's not around anymore, right? It's not. It's sold to, to uh, Starwood. I mean, I hate talking, I hate throwing shade, uh, but what was that you didn't like? Well, and, and, and I, and I want to be real clear that I am not sitting here talking to you if I didn't work for BR Guest. Mm-hmm. The, the systems, the training, there's so many things that I that I really enjoy and the yeah. people and I really loved the company, but there were things that I didn't like. I didn't think I could make a career in hospitality based on my experience with that company, and the reason why is because it was a culture around fear. Uh, fear. It's a controlling. What is it? Control and there's a type of management style. There's there's uh, it's all coming to me. I mentioned. Just keep going. Okay. Yeah. And so. And I just feel like it was like negatively incentivized. It was, I, I just never, it, it didn't, didn't speak to me. And I was like, well, if this is what it takes to be, to be successful in this business, like how do you make a career in this business? Yeah. You know, I mean like I it just, you know, once again, it gets back to like, you have to do the things you want to do yeah. that you're passionate about. Mm-hmm. And I was passionate about it, but I was like, if this, if this is what it takes to be successful, then like, why would I want to do this? Yeah. I mean, I think it was, it's a command and control is I think the expression that I was trying to mm-hmm. come up with. And it's that, that leadership style of like my way or the highway mm-hmm. and like coming down the hammer and just, it's yeah. Like you said, a fear base, like don't mess up or else, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and doesn't, it doesn't inject positive energy. It's, 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 it was, there's a period where that was like the way to do that things. was the way that was just the way it was the way. And that, and that's no commentary on Steve Hansen, the person, because it's what the, you they know, knew. Yeah, well, it's 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 what he knew, but it's like you know, there's a person, and then there's a company, and they're not the same. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of holding me back. But I really did. I remember I was like, not still not sure. And I I went to go see a movie alone in New York, and it was like that was like one of the great things about New York is you could just do whatever you wanted solo. Yeah. Sometimes you were just like I had people everywhere. 
I just want to be alone. <laughs> yeah. And I went to go see a movie alone and I was walking back to my apartment and I was walking through the village and you know, through union square, through the village, um, you know, all the way down. I lived in like Chinatown, Tribeca and I'm walking through Soho at the point, you know, I get walked through the village, start walking through Soho and I see this like little tiny bar that's closed, but it was like so quaint and so cool. It was called the red bench. It doesn't exist anymore. And I don't, I only, by the time I ever decided to go in there, you know, it was not what it, what it looked from the outside. It had been taken over by some club. Okay. Um, but it was like this, like really quaint, like Parisian style bar. And I just remember I was like asking myself this question as I was walking. So I was about to go put in my law school apps and I was like, do I really want to do this? And I was just like, why can't I do this? And why can't I do that? And it was a really powerful question that I I still believe that is like, why can't I? Mm. And I walked by this bar and I was like, why can't I open a bar? Mm. And there was this voice and I don't know if this makes me insane, but this voice in my head that says you can. And and it was, and I just got so excited to think that I could, that I, that maybe it was okay for me to do something I wasn't supposed to do and do something I wanted to do. And at that moment I was like, I'm going to open a bar and I was just laser focused on it. And that's when we started working on what would eventually become cure. Okay. Wait, so how old are you at this point? Is this what God, year is it's between 2006 and 2009, 11. Right? So, so, so it's 2004. Five? Four. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's either three or four. No, probably four. It was between 2006 and 2001. Yeah. It was either four or five. I think it was four. Yeah. So. Yeah. It was four because I always say it took five years to open Cure and we opened in 09. So, so it was 18 four. years ago. Yeah. 18 years ago. 18 years ago. Uh, thanks for making me feel old. <laughs> so what, you're like 28 years old at this point? Yeah. Yeah. Around that age. Mm-hmm. So you're going to open a bar 28 years old. And what's the narrative in your head? If I want to do this, I need to what? Well, and so I, I mean, obviously I was really inspired by what Evan was teaching me and it taught me. Um, I also at the same time, like transferred within Be Our Guest to go work. They opened an Italian restaurant that had a velvet rope club beneath it. It was like celebrity club. And I, uh, and so I went and worked for the Italian restaurant and very quickly went during the opening. I was like, I could do this or I could go have like tons of fun downstairs. Well, I was working until like seven 30 in the morning. I was working like three days a week. I lived a vampire's life. And so it gave me a lot of time to like be in New York, really like take it in. And so I had so much free time to go out, go experience. I had enough money to go eat in restaurants and, experience bars and I just was like I had an amazing existence yeah um and I and I was also kind of like kind of really inspired by what Evan was teaching me about about bars and spirits and 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 I just started working on this idea that that would become cure and and then there, and there were people that were doing things in New York, like Angel Share and um, and Milk and Honey and um, uh, Flatiron Lounge. And I remember like being like, yeah, you know, I really love that. And I really love that. And then and I, and I walked in and when Employees Only first opened up, I walked in. I was like, God, that is really close to what I want to do. 
I was just thinking employees only. I was like, I wonder yeah. if we went to employees only. Past yeah. guests in the show. Uh, who's the owner? His name's escaping. I know it's a unique name. Well, there there were a bunch, but yeah. you're talking about tall, skinny dude. Uh, was Igor Dushan? Dushan, I think. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so, and and so I remember walking and be like, oh man, that is so freaking close to what I've been thinking, and. And I and I and I, and I loved it there too, you know. And, so what was and, it and that the they were days. doing that made you like? What was what so was they it were, that you were thinking? So I mean, obviously, there was some some dining background, and there was some bar club background, and I liked both. And they really kind of like took them and put them into a format that I loved because it was it was cocktails, but it was fun. And I, I really thought to myself, I was like. This is what I wanted. Like they knew how to let their hair down. Yeah. Right. But they also knew how to like make really quality things. There was, I, I remember from that interview, I was really impressed by Dushan. I should, I should get him back on the show. It would be great to reconnect with him. It's been so long. And it was one of my favorite interviews. Um, but the, the focus on the culture in, in the bar scene, which is something that you don't really see. It's, it's the, the that level of that expectation of standard and, and professionalism mm-hmm. in the bar scene in New York city, uh, I just remember culture. It's been so long since I've had the conversation, but mm-hmm. was that, are you familiar with their culture? I am. So and get so, into it for me. <laughs> well, and, and I mean, Please. I think it goes back to like training and the yeah. professionalization of bartenders again. I mean, pre, pre-prohibition, um, bartending was a really respected yeah. profession and, and post-prohibition it had kind of lost its luster. And so it was kind of going back to like real professionals behind the bar and and that's not to say that in that time between that there weren't professionals working on bars. It's to say that the way that professionals thought about themselves and the job had to change, and they were one of the first people. And then there were others too. Yeah, uh, they and were the, the bartenders. Bartender. Yeah, and and, the, and some of the first people stateside to really do it. And that's yeah. and that's and that includes Flatiron, and that includes Bemelmans, and that includes um, Milk and Honey for sure. And Angel Share, and and there were just an amazing. There was an amazing spark of something that was going on mm-hmm. around cocktails and the professionalization of the bartender. Yeah. Uh, w- at what point do you join Union Square Hospitality? So I joined. So I was working three days a week, okay. right? And I was working till seven, seven thirty in the morning or whenever I would get home, and I just was like a little empty. And I remember talking to a friend of mine and who had just gotten a job at the modern because they were, they just opened and he got a job and he was like, man, we really need some, some more bartenders here. And like, they want to like, you know, they were asking me if I know anybody and you know, are you, are you interested? And then my friend Vince had gone and taken a job there too. So it was two of my good friends that were there, Rick and Vince. And so I was just thinking about, it. I was like, God, I really would love to, I like, I've, would love to go work for Danny Meyer. I'd love to do some fine dining stuff. Like I'm sitting here, I'm doing this three days a week and it's like, it's, you know, the money's great, but like, you know, once you've done it, you've done it. And, and so I was like, I'll, I'll go do it. And I I don't remember what year it was. It was either, you know, I had to guess it was somewhere in 05. Yeah. And, and I just, I just had a ball. I mean, it was so fun to get into to to get into a fine dining restaurant and still be able to make cocktails, but also to like really focus on people that were like clear headed yep. and sober, 
until we made them not sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in just to like, it was so fun to work in a restaurant where like, and, it, and Gabriel Cruther was in the kitchen. And I remember like every time we'd like put down, I, it was like, it was one of those jobs where like you put down every plate of food and you're like, this is going to blow your mind. You're just like, yeah. bam. It's like so fun <laughs> when you work in these environments, when you're putting great things out. Being a every, part of that, I can only imagine. Yeah. And yeah. you're just like, like what is cooler than like, putting something in front of somebody that you know is going to blow their fucking mind. Yeah, the pride in that. Yeah. Just knowing that you're coming, like Danny Meyer, and you, to this day, but even then, like the, the amount of accolades they're getting, the, the yeah. recognition they're getting, it, you're, you're at the best. You're, and so you're, we were, you're and, with the best. And so we were there as, as, uh, as the Modern won uh, the Beard Award for Best New Restaurant, but yeah. like we didn't know what the Modern yeah. would eventually go on to become, which is you know an iconic outstanding Michelin rated restaurant. Mm-hmm. We didn't know that then. I mean, it felt pretty cool and pretty fun. It felt like we were building towards something, but like it was just, it was just awesome. I loved it. And I love working for Danny Meyer because Danny Meyer showed me number one, the, the hierarchy of how you, of, of how I think you need to build your restaurants. Right. But more importantly than that, he showed me that you don't have to be, a controlling negative. You don't have to have a controlling negative culture to be a successful restaurateur. And to me, that was when I was like, all right, I can do this. Yeah. And you, you talked about the culture uh, before. Correct. It was the command and control fear-based culture. And this is the opposite of that. And it was, and it was invigorating for me. And I mean, I think I worked there like a year. I don't know, but it was like, to me, it was such a formative year there because it showed me that it, there is another way. Yeah. And the and modern was in the, the um, what is that, F-16 flying around? If you guys hear rumbling in the background, roaring, it's there's an F-16 flying so, circle. So we have an Air Force base in Bell Chase <laughs> on the West Bank, and they love to do flyovers okay. of New Orleans all the time. I was like, that is not a commercial plane. I used to be a commercial pilot. I was like, mm-hmm. that is something else. I was like, I, I recognize the sound. Anyway, a little... My ADD is kicking in clearly right now. Oh, um, I've got it too. So this should be really ball. This should be really fun <laughs> for, for your listeners because between both of us, we should but the modern, stay really on track here. Well, it's all right. I mean, if you, I, I'm loving the conversation. I, I want to respect your time. If it goes a little over, I'm totally fine with that. Uh, but the modern is in, that was in the art facility, right? I'm trying yeah, to yeah. So it's yeah. in MoMA, and, it, right. and it's still there. Yeah, and yeah. it's still wonderful. Yeah. So um, you talked about you you saw the hierarchy. What do you mean by that? Can you share that? Yeah, I mean, I'll try and remember, but it was first. I'm, I, I'm not sure if I remember the exact order anymore. I'm sure I could flip open uh, setting the table and tell you, but, um, but it was it was a a team first approach. Are you and, talking about? I can go through. I think if you're talking about the hierarchy, it's it's yeah. first the guest. I'm sorry, first the inner guest, the employee. Then it's the guest. Then mm-hmm. it's the the purveyor. Then it's the community. No, then it's the community, then it's the purveyor, then it's your investors, I think it goes in that order. Yeah, but then it was the guest at like five. It was not the guest at two. Oh. Okay. I think. But I, but but whatever it was, it was like the look, employees you, number one. Yeah, the employees <laughs> number one. And like obviously in you know, you have to it was also showed me that like your partners that that you buy from are really important. Really important part of the equation. But your community and if you're not community based, like you can, like you've got to support your community because they support you. And it, and 
you know, obviously you have to pay back your debts. Yeah. But, uh, but somewhere in there, it's like, get, it's like debt and guest. Yeah. And that, and, and that's not to say that the guest isn't valuable because the, the guest is our, mo- is, is one of our most valuable, you know, is one of the most valuable things in this entire business. It's all about taking care of our guests, but you need a team to do it. But if you don't, you know, it's like the, well, yes. Yeah. You need a team to do it. Yeah. But, it, but you know, it's like, it, it's like being able to like, to like run a marathon, right? Like you've, and I say this to someone that was never, would never run a fucking marathon. <laughs> um, I've done a, a, a 5k. That's good enough for me. I haven't even done a 5k. <laughs> um, so it is, um, you know, you wouldn't, you can't run a marathon unless your body is in shape, mm-hmm. right? You can't serve your guest unless your team is ready to serve yeah. the guests. And that is, look, that is a Sisyphean task, right? Like you, you work your butt off to make sure that your team is in, it has the resources that they need to do their job yeah. and, and, but, and also can do their job relatively easily. Now that is aspirational. That doesn't always happen, but like that is the, to me, that's the goal. Yeah. In my mind, it's the hierarchy is guest. Uh, sorry, I keep on saying guest. It's employee, guest. Then I want to say it's community. And then I think it's um, purveyors and then investors. I think it goes in that order. But mm-hmm. feel free to correct me if you're listening to this and you think that's wrong. I I think I it's know. somewhere in there. I mean, I think yeah. it can shift. But I think it, you know, to me, I think in, I think particularly coming, coming out of the pandemic even more, like, you know, it, it's, it has to be team first. Yeah. And that's the big takeaway is that it's the same idea as like being fiscally responsible. Like mm-hmm. there, there t- tends to be like this, I don't know what to call it, but like this error or this, like this, uh, this avoidance of, of money, like money's bad. Like it's people, not bad. You need it. And the thing is one of the reasons why you need to be fiscally responsible is because you need to be able to pay the people to take care of them, to make sure that they feel secure and that they have what they need and that they keep showing up. Like you need the money to take care of the people so that the people can take care of the guests, your people being your employees. And, and, and they like, can take care of their families and they yeah. can take care of their loved ones and their bills. And it's like, there's a lot of responsibility so, that get, comes from, comes from employing people. Yeah. And number one is to make sure their job is there. Yeah. And, and certainly, you know, that we probably don't have enough time for this, but like, you know, one of the greatest pieces of trauma over the past five years, probably more than that, is for team members and for and for owners and partners was violating that trust of employment and having to terminate all of our teams on March 16th for, for COVID. Yeah. Because I think anybody, I mean, we certainly knew it down here from, from Hurricane Katrina. Like, they weren't going to build a new you know, a new structure to get aid to people. It was going to go through existing structures. We saw that during Katrina too. And so we knew unemployment was going to be that vehicle. It was, it was, it was obvious. And so that's why we had to do what we did, but the scar tissue and the trauma of what had to be done in mid March of 2020 still exists in this business. And, and it is, it was a violation of trust, but it was still the right thing to do. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's a, it's a it's death by a thousand slices. I think there's so many things happening right now. We like mm-hmm. to simplify it. We like to call it one thing. I think that's a huge like uh, uh, probably the ma- a, a majority contributor is the the, the trauma that the, the the trust that was broken. There's so many things happening right now. We can mm-hmm. maybe talk about that at the end. But this is around the time um, in your in your your story that 
Katrina happens. And that was the second thing that brought you back home. Yeah, so it did. And so when I say like the lessons that we learned during Katrina, that is a lesson that the New Orleans community learned. I was fortunate that I was not here for Katrina. Yeah. Um, I was still in New York. I was working at the Modern when, when uh, Katrina happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and How was your family during all that? Everybody's- so, so my family was okay. Um, so my brother was working for the city of New Orleans, um, and he had a house that he would find out later was that he... So funny because there are all these like little areas in New Orleans that uh, someone's like, "Oh, you live in the Esplanade Ridge." Well, like no one knows what the Esplanade Ridge really means until the city floods. Mm-hmm. And so he thought his house he had lost his house, but his house had not been lost because he was lived on the Esplanade Ridge, which was high, mm-hmm. which is a little high ridge. Yeah, in in his neighborhood in Mid City where a lot of it flooded. Yep. Um, and then my sister was a producer for CNN, and because she was a New Orleanian. Um, she was down here almost immediately working for CNN in the aftermath. Um, but I mean, I had plenty of family that was here and, and there was, if, even if it wasn't water damage, there was wind damage. I mean, it was, I mean, for lack of a better term, it was totally fucked. Yeah. You know, I mean, like you can't even imagine, I mean, just the sheer size and scale of the damage. I mean, I remember coming back if, if, so Katrina happened August 29th. Of uh, of 2005, and I remember coming back and being like, "Holy shit!" And that was for Thanksgiving. So I came back months later, and I was like, "Good lord!" Yeah. And it was like in the process of starting to figure out, but it was like, I mean, it was it was like a war zone. Yeah, I I can, like I, I've only seen pictures, and I've been told that the pictures don't do it justice. And 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 I only know, I mean, I wasn't here, so like the people that were here, like you hear people talk about Katrina, and they get that like dead eyed thing that you see that that you see when you when you talk to someone who's been in war, yeah. and they're like remembering, and and you get that. I saw it in Susan Spicer's eyes yesterday. Yeah, when she was talking about it. Um, so this is also around the time where um, you come back. 2005 but you moved back in 2006 what was the point for moving back so uh, so i like to say just for like for like easy like i moved back like right at the end of 06 so it's so almost a year after Katrina. yeah a little a little over a year yeah. so i moved back like for the holidays of 06 got it um so i think i came back in december and i you know i i think if you were a new orleanian i've said this a thousand times if you were a new orleanian and you lived elsewhere, you, you live elsewhere, you were just like, the city is not going to exist if the people that love the city don't come back and rebuild it. Mm. And so I felt a real draw. And my sister had been in New Orleans for a long time, and she lives in L.A. and still does. She lived in L.A. and still does. And my brother was here, and my family was here, and everybody was just like working towards trying to get this place back. And I felt a real calling to, to come back home and to be part of the, you know, of the rebuild of new Orleans, you know, it was just, it just felt like it was where I had to be. Yeah. So what was your con- contribution going to be? How are you going to rebuild? What was your plan? What was, what was your, your, your vision for your role? Well, that's a tough question because I had been working on what would become cure in New York. Yeah. You had that. And I've been rolling it around. And of course, like you know, the guy that didn't know, you know, I might as well have just fallen off the turnip truck in New York as far as opening a business goes. I didn't know anything. And 
you know, I was up there, I was trying to figure, you know, talk to a realtor and the realtors would barely call me back. I would, you know, I would call an insurance company and say, Hey, what is, you know, what does an insurance policy look like? And they'd be like, uh, I don't know, kid, you have any real numbers? And I was like, no, I'm just like trying to like figure this thing out. Yeah. And I just kind of felt like it was dead end everywhere. And I, um, and I didn't know enough either. Right. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And I just knew that I didn't know everything. Mm -hmm. And, and so New Orleans, I just had this idea and I knew I really wanted to do it and I was committed to it. And so I, I started like looking back home and I wanted to be a part of the revival and, and I wanted to be what would eventually become a revival, but I wanted to be part of the rebuild. And, and so I was like, well, look, I have this idea like New Orleans is, I believe in New Orleans that it can handle the same idea that would exist in New York could exist in New Orleans. And I'm just going to work towards it in New Orleans where I can call an insurance company that where I know somebody and be like, Hey, can you give me advice mm-hmm. where I can call uh, people that are, you know, that know how to borrow money, that know how to, that know how to renovate that. Know, I mean, there was just a network here that I could lean on. Yeah. And this is something that I've come up or I've noticed uh, uh, it's a pattern. Go, go open a restaurant where you have a, roots where you have a foundation where you have people because mm-hmm. it it takes a tribe it takes an army it takes you, a village exactly it, and people try to go they'll like say hey i want to go open a restaurant in like some place i've never been before and they don't have the network they need mm-hmm. to execute it you're always better off going to where you have the roots where you have the army the village that you need to get it going well, and it's just like i mean we we really exist on the kindness of others mm-hmm. right and and in so many different things, you know, that's that like that's what makes community. That's what is, is is at the heart of what we do in this business. And like, if you're not a part of the community, how can you be as successful as you should be? Mm-hmm. And so, I learned very quickly that without the community and without the advice and without the goodwill, that we just never would have opened. I mean, we really, in some ways, like opened with the wind at our back because there were so many people that we're excited about what we were doing because we had been talking about it and they've been giving us advice and it just, there were so many people invested in our success mm. because of that. Yeah, man. Um, I think now is a great time to take our first break to thank our sponsors an hour into this thing. Uh, I'm loving the conversation. That's a good yeah. sign that I'm just having a, a great time with you, man. We'll be right back to talk about how you executed this recently on the show. You've been hearing it come up often Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-Day Pilot Program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurant tours through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals. Recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, 
with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. Restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. We're back and we're going to start diving into the more nitty gritty business stuff of how you got to grow this i don't call it an, an empire in the bar scene of new orleans i don't know about an empire i mean i think you're doing great stuff but it, like even just like the what you're doing as far as influencing other people you might only only own five or what is it six five what's the total so we so between bars and restaurants and 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 obviously partnerships are all are coming all different shapes and sizes right and and so I think I'm a part of five different bars and restaurants. So you might only have your fingers in five or six, but I feel like your presence goes far beyond that because of what, how you've risen, raised the bar in the industry. I would know? certainly have to be more self-aware than I am <laughs> to, to be able to understand that. But um, I think we've been doing this long enough yeah. that it would be impossible for us not to have some sort of impact, good or bad. Mm-hmm. Um and so I acknowledge that, but it's very hard to quantify what that is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you've definitely had an influence on not just New Orleans, but with what you're doing with Taste of or Tales of the Cocktail Foundation. Uh, what's what happened here is echoing throughout the nation and the world right now. So I'll boost your ego. Well, thank you, <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, so it's always good. You come back to New Orleans. You had this original plan to open Cure in New York City. You said, "Why not do this at home, where I have the foundation, the network, the." the the village I need to make this happen. Where do you start? So I start by, by getting a bar job, right? Because you've got to learn the market. Yes. And, and so I had to find a bar that made, that made sense that had the right products. It's in the right location. Um, just to kind of understand the market. And I remember like really quickly. Uh, so I got a job. There's a wine bar on St. Charles Avenue called, called Della Chase and they have really great spirit selection. And I was like, this seems like a great place. And so I got, I got my job there and it was, you know, it, it was wonderful because I was face to face with New Orleanians again. Yeah. The other thing and, you're doing is you're building your new clientele. You're and I think that's something that's underrated is, you're not only building your relationships with the guests, but you're also building relationships with other professionals. You're recruiting your team. Yeah, and 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 so, you know, there's some there's some stuff to that too, right? And and there's some 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 lessons I learned in that along the way too. Um, and but what I realized really quickly is that like what worked for me in New York as a hospitality professional what made me a competent bartender in Manhattan was not the same thing that would make me a competent bartender in New Orleans. Okay. Really quickly. Get into that. Well, I, it was, it was funny because I would hear friends of friends being like, man, your friend is such an asshole. And I was like, I don't feel like an asshole. Like I don't, I don't, you know, it's, 
and, and you know, in my heart, I don't feel like an asshole, yeah. but like maybe that's what I'm projecting. And I realized my asshole meter has not gone off once for the record. Well, <laughs> it's, it's in there. Um, <laughs> at least one of them. Um, so, 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 so I remember like, I, I just started to like analyze like what I needed to do my job well in New York. And I started to think about the bartenders that people were drawn to down here. And, and I realized that what makes New Orleans hospitality really special is what our customer, what our guest demands of us, mm. which is to give of ourselves. And in New York, I did not find that to be the case. I found that you'd kind of, you know, some, some New York guests were very difficult. And so you'd put your armor on you know, your imaginary armor on and you'd go to work and you'd be as professional and on your game as you could, but you didn't let anybody in. It was too many people. It was like, you need to let a few regulars in here and there, but like in general, it was like, I come to, to work, I do my job. I am a perfect hospitality robot. Yeah. And then down here, I would just, I did, did what I knew. It's more service-based, I would say. You're a service robot. And now New Orleans is like a hospitality robot. Where, yeah. where I think genuine warmth, hosp- like caring, like you, you've letting gotta, people You've got to really give of yourself. Yeah. And which I think would have made me better in New York too, honestly. Yeah. And particularly as as Danny Meyer and some other, some in Bulgadara and some other, um, you know, real, you know, industry you know, beacons they that they, you know, as their philosophy has kind of been disseminated, I think that it definitely has changed the way that, that, that people think about it mm-hmm. everywhere. But that has always been the case down here is that if you're not giving of yourself, if you're not like opening your heart to your guest and like being real with them, that people down here are like, you're an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. So some of that New York vibe rubbed off on you a little bit. Yeah, it did, and 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 it was and it was good and bad. Like I, there were plenty of things that I would wouldn't trade wouldn't trade my time in New York for anything, mm-hmm. for anything at all. And it and I it has made me infinitely better. Yeah, at so, my job. So you're getting this job. You're you're uh, acclimating to the New York, New Orleans way of things as mm-hmm. far as the hospitality industry goes. Because you never really got into it deep in New Orleans. No, Without, no, I with mean, the exception of commanders. I mean, I did, a, you know, I mean, I did a year hosting and I yep. did, and I did a, you know, a summer of bouncing, you know, that yep. bouncing really, really served me very well. <laughs> so, uh, what, like when do you start actually making progress and opening your own place? How did you do it? So I, you know, it's, it's so difficult to say, right? Because on some level you're doing it all the time. You just, there's an order of operations that I know in 2022, that I didn't know when I was in my twenties. Okay. And so in some ways it was like, you know, I was more, it was trying to figure out me, I would write menus and philosophy and, and, Oh, I want it to look like this and I want to do it. And so we were, did all these things, try and build it in our head. And then you'd go and you'd look at spaces and be like, well, we can't do that here. Mm. And so ultimately when I started working with my partner, Matthew Conkey, who's a childhood friend of mine, and Matthew's a designer and a builder. Um, we, so we, and, and we had been looking at spaces. In fact, we even put a deposit on a space that we, that we pulled out of uh, because it just wasn't the right fit. 
and it has been had been a bunch of restaurants before and it's been a bunch of restaurants since and it would have been an objectively terrible place for cure okay um and we just looked and we looked and we had finite resources and what we knew but but you know i had a vision and 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 matt was you know had a vision of design you know as we started working on it together and and we, to echo that vision from what you shared earlier, it was going to be a balance of high-end cocktail and food where you're trying to, to blend the, the, the so drink and drink culinary. food, um, but also, but also fun on the weekends and like a little more fun at late, you know, late night and approachable. Yeah. And, and so it was, which New Orleans didn't really have. And so we, it was funny because we'd like go to neighborhood meetings and be like, Hey, we want to open a bar. And they'd be like, no way. <laughs> and, and then we'd be like, but no, but not that kind of bar. And you yeah. couldn't, couldn't describe yeah. it. And so we ended up having to like put a pack, uh, you know, a packet together that was like, I mean, I would probably laugh, laugh myself out of the room today if I put that packet together, but it was like who we are, what our backgrounds were like, we were locals, like, this is the kind of bar that we're thinking, but we don't really have an example. Imagine a restaurant. It was just, it was, it was, it was a hard sell. Mm -hmm. But so we ended up over here on Ferret street and, uh, in this, this area had taken a massive amount of water during, during Katrina. Then the residential neighborhood was totally flooded out. The business corridor was totally flooded out. The amount of money it took to get these buildings back online was really significant. And so, the business corridor kind of started first and we we saw this building it had been an old electrician shop and then upper we are had been an an attorney's office and uh and so interestingly it's still an attorney's office yeah. um and I, I didn't see it i didn't see this building at all i mean the all, all the windows that are downstairs were all bricked in it just looked like this massive fortress um there was like I mean, it, it, you know, it was wild. There was like, there were, there was like porn all upstairs. There was like, you know, it would, there was a, a firebird and downstairs. It was like, like a, like a, like a broken down firebird car. Um, it was, it was just, it was just something a weird was spot. speaking to you though. What was it? Well, and, 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 and this is full, full credit to my partner, Matthew Conkey in that, you know, Matthew understood that this was an old firehouse. I couldn't see it. And he also understood the street and that it was a really important corridor that was not, that, that was not developed. And he said like, look, I think that there's an opportunity here. And I was like, man, I don't know. You know, that's like the nature of our relationship. He'll say something <laughs> and be like, I don't know, man. He's like very, very aggressive and I'm very conservative. And but that's probably what makes it a good partnership is you is, need that balance. Is, is, you need it, people it, to be pushed out of your comfort zone. Yeah. And so he'll push me out of my comfort zone and I'll kind of pull him into reality <laughs> yeah. and, and, and together it works pretty, it works pretty well. Uh, I'd like to think over the years, we probably rubbed off on each other quite a bit. Um, and we were childhood friends, so we always did that. Which yeah. you had that level of candor and that communication. Yeah. Candor and trust. That, yeah. And, and so so I think it really started, like, I think there was an idea. Then I think that was the important part. Now, I wouldn't recommend that anybody that's listening go into a restaurant or a bar in the same half-cocked fashion that I did. <laughs> um, I didn't, I just didn't, I didn't know anything, you know? And, and so I knew how to run a restaurant. 
in a bar, but like, but from a very specific yeah. way, but I didn't know the business. I also wouldn't let that stop you because you don't let what you don't know stop you because the only way to know is to go, you know, like you have to just take that leap and just be ready to learn a lot. Yeah. And, and so, so we were talking about this earlier and I, I kind of wanted to mention it then, but I figured we'd save it for this. Like it's like, if you know what I know now, I would never do what we did at cure. Mm. I, I, it's just, I would look at it and be like, this is not going to work. So what wouldn't you have done? But it did it work. It did work. It's been, yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been incredible. <laughs> did it change what the original vision was to make it work or what? No, no, not at all. So, and I think that, that there was some, some youth and some hubris that like really worked in our favor because we were like, there was no fear. There was no understanding. What is hubris? So I think that it is the way I view it is that it is just like, I'm like, I'm going to do what I want. I, I, that nothing can, nothing bad can happen to me. Mm -hmm. Ignorance. Yeah. I mean, mean, ignorance. Yeah. (laughs) And, and so it, and so in that way, like, I mean, we were, we were ignorant about, but aren't we all like, yeah. And, and, and so I guess I've seen more now. Ignorant is a bad word. It's because we all are. I think it's, it's, it has negative condensation or condon, not condensation. That's the white condon, condonation. What's the word I'm looking for? Help me out. Connotation. Connotation. Thank you very much. Uh, but I think it's, it's okay to be ignorant. It, it well, in, I, and for a short period of time, I would say <laughs> it depends on what you're ignorant about. Yeah. In this case, it was really useful. Yeah. Um, but if you knew, would you have ever done it? Ignorance, that's, no. that's the bliss of ignorance. No, no, I yeah, think. yeah. I mean, I, I agree. And I think that, like, given the experience, seeing things that can go wrong yeah. would make me do it differently. Mm. And it wouldn't have been as successful, mm. right? But I, I also think that, like, the fact that we were naive enough, and there were people around us that were like, what are you doing? <laughs> there were, like, so many, like, you know, pseudo interventions and it was, give me an I example mean, of the things that you were doing that just may, would make people shake their head. Well, I mean, first of all, we were going into a neighborhood that had very little business activity. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it was dangerous. I mean, there was a murder right on the corner, um, of cure, like a month before we closed on the building. Mm-hmm. So it was not, and it had been, there had been multiple, um, multiple, uh, attempts at economic um, revival on the street that had not gone particularly well. And they just people, I think a lot of people in the community, and that's not to say that there wasn't a vibrant community here, uh, before Katrina, because there was, and there were even some businesses that were really vibrant. But I think that to a good portion of the city, it was not, it was not an area that was considered thriving. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like we were driving and we turned down this road, can't remember the name of the road, but it was in that direction. That seems like a very, uh, a type of community that would support what you were trying to do mm-hmm. well. It's not too far, maybe a half mile down the road. Do you mm-hmm. know what I'm talking What's the name of that, that road there? Oh, I mean, you talking the, about uh, Napoleon? Do you remember the name of the road, Sam, when we rolled in? Napoleon? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, I mean, it's not too far away. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that, I mean, that's what makes this neighborhood so incredible. Right? It's on the edge is that this neighborhood was like a pocket that was underdeveloped, mm. right? And most of the area and the neighborhoods around here are some of the highest net worth in the city of New Orleans. 
And, and so we looked and we're like, look, there's so much commerce happening around us. Why is this area not happening? Mm. And, and we took a gamble and I think that it was really risky. And I, I think that was why it was so on it's why it was such a bad idea on paper mm-hmm. is that it was, it just seemed like the risk was not worth the reward. Mm. I mean, I have noticed a trend in my interviews that it's, it's always the restaurant tourists who open on the fringe or on the edge of mm-hmm. where things are happening. Because generally speaking over time, as like things tend to grow from the inside out. So if mm-hmm. you're surrounded by stuff, things happening, good places, mm-hmm. it's only a matter of time before that spills over and, and slowly, you know, you become, you're in the middle of it. Yeah. But if you try to go to the middle of it on day one, whoever owns that real estate is going to be like premium dollar. Give me the money. Yeah. And then you can't be profitable because you your rents are And we riches. couldn't have been on magazine street yeah. at that point. Like we didn't have the money. So it's, it's a matter of finding that sweet spot of wh- what's next. Where is it going? I think you need an eye for it. But if, if you do have an eye for communities, if you can find a community that is on the fringe, on the edge, but it's just, if you can hold on for five years, two years, three years. Yeah. And, and, and I think it gets into a difficult conversation about, um, about gentrification. Right. And, and I think that that is the nature of real estate, unfortunately. And I think that that has happened so much over the years that in, in particularly in this city, you see, you see neighborhoods rise economically and yeah. fall economically. And it is, you know, this, this was a bustling corridor and then it, and then it was down on its luck and then it, and then it got, and then it got hot again. And for cities that are old, like the city, you see that happen a lot. Yeah. Um, but I do think that that is, it's, it's a conversation that has to happen about what happens when people start investing in communities that aren't used to investment and what that means for the people that used to live there. And yeah. I mean, I think you need to be sensitive to it, but I think it's also one of those inconvenient truths that land, you're, no person is entitled to land. And you, yeah. if you want, if you don't believe that statement, then look at the history of time. Show me any time where a people, because they were there first, were entitled to it. It's just the, the it's human nature, it, and it, it sounds is, cold. And but but there is a financial transaction involved, right? And I think that that is the thing that we don't talk about with gentrification. Yeah. At some point, someone pays for a property, and someone pays more for that property than the property is going for at yeah. the time, with a vision for the future. And uh, I mean, I don't want to, I mean, I think we could have a very long conversation about this. Yeah. I can tell you this, this neighborhood was when we got involved was almost dead Mm. because there was, there was no common. I mean, the buildings were destroyed. Yeah. And, and there definitely in recent years, there's been more talk about the gentrification of Ferret and there was a community that was here before it existed. It was, it, it was a meaningful community the community has changed and, and for that, I I certainly play a part. I've certainly played a part in it and uh, I'm, I'm sorry for what was, but, um, you know, we don't live in, you know, we don't live, live in a freeze frame. Everything's always changing. Mm -hmm. We live in a dynamic world, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but one, one thing that I did find interesting about you particularly is the amount of partners you work with. Cause I think I counted four partners with the first you had Matt, who you mentioned. Yeah. Kirk, uh, Kirk. Um, wait, is Kirk, S- is that a long Kirk, name? Kirk is Is Turk another name or is that? No. So, so Turk is right. So Jason Dietrich, uh, Jason 
quote unquote Turk okay. Dietrich. Got it. Got it. So how many partners were there in this first location? So there started off as two and then there were three. You and so, Matt. So me and Matt and then Kirk um, got partnership after a year. Okay. Um, I, I tend to lean, I think if I project into the future with the direction things are going with the issue with labor, uh, I see there being more owners going forward. And I think the only way you're going to attract onto yourself the talent, one of the biggest ways is by giving people a stake in the business, equity in the business. I think more there's, there are more people today that exist that want ownership. They want to be seen. They want that. Um, was that what was going on here or? Well, yeah. I mean, I just thought that we wanted, yeah, I mean, certainly we wanted people that were, that were aligned mm-hmm. on the business, but it was also like we wanted to, to do other stuff with the people that we liked working with. Right. And so like, you know, Kirk had been here for a year. He was instrumental in our success and still is. Um, he's the majority partner at Canaan table and, and we've done a lot of projects together and, and I love working with him. I love working with him to this day. And then, you know, Turk is, uh, was the general manager at cure for years and years and years. And, and now he's uh, a partner at Val's and with Alfredo Noguera, who's our chef, who's a partner at Canaan table and Val's. Yeah. And I mean, this is something that I saw in Richmond, Virginia, where it was almost like this, like polyamory, like of like business partnerships it, of like, I'll do I'll like you might have partners in, you might have like a couple partners in one restaurant, but this restaurant over here, you might have a whole different set of partners and those partners might also be partners with your other partners. But what I see happening is that people just know their lane. They stay in their lane and that's what they contribute to a restaurant group. And that's all they do from multiple different groups. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a little bit like that. I also just think that every, you know, different times, different people, um, you know, there's some, there's some investments that make sense for some people and don't make sense for another. And, and some, some restaurants have, you know, you can only have so many working partners in a restaurant, yeah. right? Because then it's, you, you get, you just get too many bosses and, and, and it's, and no one knows who to go to and it creates problems. So what is the secret to overcoming those challenges with partnerships? How do you get people on the same page? What, I mean, I don't know if I'm, if, you know, <laughs> I don't know if I figured it out. I mean, I, I really like and respect all of my partners mm-hmm. and, and, and I, and I hope that it's mutual. Um, I, I, I try and, and, and this doesn't matter whether it's people that, that, that are not partners that work with us or people that are like, you know, I try and treat them the way that I would want to be treated. And, and, and I, and I'm trying to create fairness and sometimes fairness, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of a hard to quantify thing, but, um, I always liked what, you know, what my dad used to say when he was in business, he was like, look, I just want what's fair. And what's fair is that you, you are thriving and I'm thriving Mm -hmm. and win, win. Yeah. I mean, that's all I'm really trying to look for in business is win wins. Yeah. And I think that was something that has changed recently. I think the mentality of business, say 15, 20 years ago and before that, was there can only be one winner and the purpose of business was to win, which is total, which is total bullshit. And there are people that do it, but in the long run, when you, when you do business like that, you don't win. Yeah. And, and, and maybe you can, you you, might be sitting on a mountain of cash, but you might be sitting on 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 a mountain of cash, (laughs) but like no one likes you. Yeah. And no one wants to really win. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And then you can go like, 
you know, making an, you know, try and like buy some friends, but like yeah. those aren't real friends. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, ultimately I, I just, it's just the way I'm wired. Like I really, and, and that doesn't mean that everybody always feels, you know, this is, life you know people are complex creatures like doesn't mean that everybody always feels like everything is fair Mm -hmm. you know you're trying to create fairness but and you're trying to create win-wins but i think it's the aspiration of a win-win that is what makes it work Mm -hmm. and that's what i want in partnerships that's what i want in life it's what i want in everything because I, i i don't need to win i need for i i want everybody to feel success and I want everybody and I want to, I want people to wake up and be like, you know, I really feel like, I really feel like this is like, I don't know. I don't even know where I'm going, but it's like, <laughs> but it's, it, the pie is better when shared. You can have a whole big ass fucking pie to yourself, but when you serve somebody else a piece of that pie mm-hmm. and they enjoy it and you see that they like it, everything's better when shared. And mm-hmm. I think that's, that's the lesson is like, it's it's about the journey. It's about the experience. It's about sharing it, and that's what mm-hmm. it's all about. It's about make. It, it's the holistic approach. Um, yeah, and 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 look, you know, ultimately, like different amounts of contributions, different amounts of equity. Like there, it's it's never it's never a hundred percent equal, right? And that is that's where it gets a little you know a little difficult. But like you know, ultimately, it is that everybody can enjoy success. Yeah. But one of the things that you pointed out that I thought was great, and this is what I've seen, it's like you, as you're opening other restaurants, you're creating opportunity for other people. You're rewarding the people that were there from the beginning. I think that's why we grew. Exactly. Is that, I mean, like, look, you know, I mean, I mean, my heart is downstairs at Cure. Like that was my, that was my dream. And anything that's happened beyond Beyond that has just been lanyap. I'm sure you've heard that word already since you've been down here. It's no, like a little actually, something extra. What is it? It's, it means a little is something extra. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's something here. It's like a culture of lanyap, where like it's like an acknowledgement, a little something extra. Like, yeah. like so everything that has happened since then has been lanyap for me, mm-hmm. in that it was not what I. It was I'm totally off plan. I had no. I like. There's so many people that are like, oh, I had a five and a 10 year plan. No, I had like, I knew what I wanted to do. I did it and everything else. I've just been like totally fucking around. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it, which is like what you wouldn't tell anybody to do. Like, yeah. I'm like, I, I just like, but I think there's truth. I mean, there's, here's the thing. There's no one way to do anything. And that's one of the things I've learned because the more in almost a thousand conversations with people who've gone here in many different approaches, there's a million different ways. And that's one of like, how am I supposed to tell somebody? This is one of the reasons why I don't consider myself. I don't want to be the expert. I don't want to be the one to tell people to do stuff because I still don't fucking know. The more I learn, the more I'm like, what the hell? Like, what is the secret? That is knowledge, right? (laughs) It's like when you know that you don't know, (laughs) that is, you know, like... The more I know, the more I know I don't know. Exactly. Yeah. Like I, I've, I've told this story a bunch. Like I remember um, it was one of my first tales of the cocktail. Um, it was one of my first tales of the cocktails. And I was, I was invited at dinner with my, with my mentor, Eben. I was sitting next to Jared Miller, who's a, a gin expert. And I heard him talking about, and I like really thought I knew like shit about shit. I was like really like pretty, pretty, pretty freaking cocksure. And I am like, sitting down and this guy starts talking about gin and I'm like, Holy 
shit. I don't know anything. <laughs> That's how I feel when I talk about cameras with uh-huh. Sam over here off 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 camera. But yeah, yeah, and you and you exactly. realize Constantly that like, humbled. but it was like it was so important. Like these are these are important moments because you're like, hey, take it easy, buddy. Like you're you're there is more to know than you will ever know, mm. and so like just talk what you know about you know you can talk about what you know about but you should probably spend more time listening yeah um and i've yeah and i think which you do i've i used to talk a whole lot more on this podcast even when i listen to my old stuff i'm like gosh shut up uh but like the one thing i know is that we live in a very complex system complex Mm -hmm. systems are never the same and people think they figure it out but there's always a variable that they're not considering and there's a million different ways to get in different places. And one of the ways is to focus on doing one thing really well to crush that one thing. And then what ends up happening is the world just starts throwing opportunities at you, but you never had a plan to do that stuff. You just say, this is what I want to do. I'm going to do it with everything that I have. And this is going to be my baby. And when you put the energy into one thing and only one thing, other things happen. And then you, but you have to be open. Yeah. Right. And, and it's like, I like, let's, let's look, you know, let's break out the crystals and the candles because I'm we're gonna get new agey. Here. Like you have got to be like super open to what the world throws your way, and you have like I really believe like if someone wants to go have a drink or a coffee or a meeting, like you try and take everything and you just like and you keep yourself open to the universe mm-hmm. and the opportunities yeah. that are gonna come your way, and not all of them are gonna be good. Yeah, right. Second, but, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I was no. going to say the second core value of Restaurant Unstoppable is we are students. And that encompasses a lot. But it's that. It's we are open. We don't have the answers. Um, we are constantly learning. We we know that we'll never. But it's that open mind. And that's, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm still winging it. You yeah. know, after all these years, I'm still winging it. I just know a little bit more. So I'm going to zoom up to like 30,000 feet real quick okay. to give the listeners a big picture. So 2009, Cure Opens. Uh, we kind of gotten into that a little bit. Your second re- your second bar bar restaurant was uh, Bello CQ. Am I saying that? So, yeah. So it was so it was a cocktail bar. Belloc Belloc. was uh, So Belloc was a... Wait, let me, let me go through it real yeah, quick. Yeah, go ahead. So uh, <laughs> Belloc, which is 2011, closes in 2006. Uh, you open... Kane- 2016. Sorry, thank you. 2016. Uh, 2013, Keen and Table. Uh, so two years after Bel- Belloc. So, but just as a little addendum, we actually bought a bar in 2012 that would become Kane and Table. We, we bought a bar that was actually a restaurant in, in 2012. So, the, so in October of 2012, ran that and then re branded it and, and renovated it and turned it into Canaan table in Got 13. It. Uh, 2018, you, you get the James Beard award, outstanding bar program, uh, to that. I think you also opened the airport cure. Is that so? So yeah. So, so in 2017, sorry, 2016, as we were closing the, the, the hotel property, the hotel sold. Yeah. And, and we did not want to be a bar in a holiday Inn. Okay. And so we, so we voided our contract. After we had, we were on a five year contract. It was, I think we voided it at four and a half years. Got it. Um, we opened up a little restaurant in Bywater, uh, and that was called Cafe Henri and we closed it in a little over a year. Okay. And it was not a successful. That was 2016? 16 through 17. Yeah. I'm going to put a note there. I just, I, I want to get into the details. 
and, uh, but and I then wanna... yeah and now we learned a lot on that one yeah and then we'll it, and then, and then 2018 when i was when my yeah and so in 2018 i got involved with 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 tails um at the very end of 17 beginning of 18 um and then 18 so i went from like having this massive crushing um in in my, my in my partners too from like being like man we suck at this to after winning a James Beard. No, no, right before, (laughs) right before. And so we, um, I was like, man, we are really bad at this. I cannot believe that we've been able to do this though. You know, it's just, you know, you're just, you've got this like Christ, you know, the crisis of faith and, and confidence. And, and I, and I got involved in, in, in the, in the sale and of, of tales of the cocktail, which we would turn into a, into a, into a 501 C three. Um, and, and in that time, you know, as we, so I think I've started working on tails and is that the foundation? Is that why we're yeah. calling it a foundation? Now? Yeah. And so it was an event and there, and there was a nonprofit attached to it, but we, but we put everything into the nonprofit. Um, and so we, so I think that was what February of 18 that we, that you know that we that we closed that that transaction and I was working on that and and then in 18 in but May of 18 we won the James Beard award and I was like what is going on like <laughs> don't didn't you guys just see we just closed a restaurant yeah, yeah. um but it was for one restaurant that you got the, it wasn't for the group it was no for no one. yeah it was just yeah. for it was for it was for, for a bar it was for outstanding bar program yeah and that um, was the cure correct it was for cure yeah um okay so we also we have a mention in 2020 you opened a veils Vows. Uh, Vows. Thank you very much. Vows. Uh, and then you also have additionally the, I'm going to say, uh, Peixos and Daphine. That was more yeah. recent. Yeah. And so actually all three of those businesses opened during the, during the pandemic, which is not how they were planned. <laughs> it's not how they were planned. Yeah. Um, and but you kept, you kept going with it. I mean, I think that's something to be, there's a lesson there too, where everyone else stops. If you choose to keep going, it's going to be hard, Some, but sometimes not a choice, yeah. Eric, you know, no, sometimes you just have to like, yeah, you're like, <laughs> I mean, it's like the money spent, like the rest, yeah. like, you know, we were supposed to open vows in April of 2020. Like we were 25% over budget, you know, like we, there was no choice. Like if we didn't turn it on. Mm-hmm. We, it was just never would happen. We just would have been like, I mean, I, I remember when, you know, in, in March of 2020 being like, you know, talking to my wife and being like, Hey, uh, you know, uh, I think, I think we can keep the house, but I think we're going to like lose everything. And she was like, what do you mean? And I'm like, yeah, I think, I think maybe we can keep the house, <laughs> you know? Oh man. So it, it seems that it worked out though. I it think. did. It <laughs> did. Val's, Val's ended up being like a really smashing success. Lots of outdoor, which had been planned before. It wasn't yeah. a COVID decision. Um, and then uh, pay shows was um, was something where where someone had a, had started the project and they abandoned it, and the, and the owners asked us to if we would come in and, and and concept it and run it, and so we did that, and that's been really fun. To was get it to do. brand pay shows? It was not. Okay. No, so we so we did that. Got it. And and we were lucky that. Uh, Sazerac company actually let us use the trademark for Peixos because it was Antoine Amadie Peixos house and it was in, and so he was the the creator of Peixos bitters. Okay. Oh, I so, love that history. Yeah. So like for me, it was like, how do you not do that? Yeah. 
and you know as a, as a as a as a lover of of all things New Orleans and particularly New Orleans cocktails. Yeah. Um. And so and so that was really exciting. And then I had been working on Dauphines with my partners at Longshot Hospitality, um, for 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 years. It was supposed to open Wait, Longshot Hospitality in D.C. Okay, got it. So you have partners up there too. Yeah, and so they and so they run it. I mean, it's not like I'm it's not like I'm there every day running it. I'm I live so in New Orleans. What you bring to the table? So a lot of it was was really from from early from 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 early on as we were, we were thinking about the uh, about the concept is just having a voice at the table making sure it stayed authentic um but not being locked in you know you couldn't just drop a grand new orleans restaurant in dc and and have it be successful culturally they don't match mm. and so what you know what were the things that that were that that were evergreen for for different markets and what are the things that you know what's sacred and what could be interpreted yeah so like service style is that something that service style the um, point you made earlier with like new york versus well yeah i mean it's certainly like i think you have to be aware of your market yeah but but also i mean i'm talking about food i'm talking about drink i'm talking about design you know what were the things that really would would work out of market got it and it's been really successful and um, it's Michelin rated and, and we've just been, you know, I've, I've loved working with the long shot team and we really share a lot of common values. And so, uh, I, I'm going up there early next week and we're going to start looking at, looking at fall, but, uh, I'm, it's Being just open. been, yeah, it's just been, it's been a wonderful project that yeah. was supposed to open before the pandemic as well. And it pushed. Mm-hmm. And so everything kind of pushed yeah. into this time that you, that, that you just wouldn't, you know, we certainly wouldn't have planned it that way. Yeah. I mean, so we could talk about so many different things getting granular, but really what I want you to focus on is what were the evolutionary things for you as far as the things we, when you got into this, you, you pointed out, you didn't know you were, you were, mm-hmm. you were, I use the word ignorant. <laughs> I think that's pretty, I think that's pretty uh, accurate. Not to call you ignorant, but I think we all are there at one point, but I, you're no longer ignorant. There, there are people know. in my orbit that still might call me ignorant. <laughs> but you know, um, I think it's, we are all there, you know, and mm-hmm. even when we think we know everything, like I still feel ignorant all the time about the restaurant industry. Personally. Well, and, 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 and I've definitely heard you talk about this on, on other podcasts, but it's, um, you know, there is this imposter syndrome and it's real for sure. And it's real with everybody. I mean, there are very few people that don't have that. And I look, I still have it to this day. It's not as, it's not as like the voice isn't as loud as it used to be. Yeah. Because I'd be like, Hey, like you've like, I mean, you've done this like a few times, like you're not a total imposter. Yeah. And, Um, but, but it's still there. But I think what people don't realize, especially if they're new, if you're batting 500 in the restaurant industry, you're doing good. If, if, if every other restaurant you open is a hit, you're doing something. And I don't mm-hmm. think people realize that you're, t- you're constantly taking chances. Um, so what were, th- what were these evolutionary points for you where you think you transformed as a restaurant tour, as a bar owner? I mean, God, I mean, I, I think what that do you it's know like now this that you wish you knew. So I was. I was still, so I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, as, as as our company has grown, um, I really loved but hated work working in a place that had like very tight systems. Like when I worked uh, for for be our guest, like it was like you know we had service points every day. It was like very structured, 
and I was just like, it just rang so hollow. What do you mean by service points? So like we would like, it would be like training that would, I mean, in essence, it was training that was done every day. It'd be like one, they broke up their training into 31 days and they would do a, a different topic per, per day. And so it would, and, and so it doesn't matter what shift you were on because like, you know, it might be the first, you know, you might be scheduled on the first one month and then you'd be scheduled on the second, the next month. So it just, you eventually you'd get all the, you'd get all the training, you'd review it all the time. And I just remember being like, man, this is so corporate and like, so like, it's just so fucking stupid. Yeah. And I just like, you still feel that way? Well, and I think that, so and, and and that was youth, right? Yeah. And and I would just be like, it's so freaking hollow, and I just don't and like. I was like, for so long, I've been like rebelling against that, and now that we have like a little scale, I'm like, God, how do we like disseminate information? And it's making me be like, man, you're so stupid. Oh, like you have to like. That's why. <laughs> yeah, like you like like you have to build better systems. Yeah. And I think that there is like the like mid twenties version of myself that is like that I know I still have to speak to because of the age of people that work, you know, that work for us. But then there's like the part of me that like really realizes like what it takes to run a company that has a lot of moving parts. Yeah. And in that, that struggle is like very real in me where it's like, I still try and listen to that like 25 to 30 year old part of me because I know that that's who I need to talk to. Yeah. But then there's like the part of me that is a 45 year old human that is like, we need to make sure that everybody knows what they're supposed to do. Yeah. And I think, th- I think David Chang points it out really well when he talks about the little documentary that he did recently on mm-hmm. Netflix about the future of food or like what that's going to look like balance. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the yin and the yang, the systems versus chaos. There's, mm-hmm. there's something to said about chaos. There's an, a, there's an appeal to chaos. Mm-hmm. And I think, Service can be very chaotic. I love chaos. I thrive in chaos. My, I do. I, I kind of do too. I like loose. Like there's my interview style. I have fucking no idea what I'm going to talk about, but I just listen and that's chaos being, I think there's a certain appeal to having chaos in restaurant and not having a plan and just letting things kind of happen. But at the same time, you do need the systems. You need something and it's finding that sweet spot. It, it, it is. And I, I think for me, and uh, and I don't and you may relate to this or not, but like because I wasn't a traditional mm-hmm. learner, you know, I was very an auditory learner. Like I found that a lot of the things that 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 were being, you know, that that were being presented to me, they didn't speak to me. Mm-hmm. And so I needed to learn in a different way. And so I always was just like, "Fuck this shit," <laughs> right? And now. I realized like it was also like very self-indulgent because mm-hmm. I was like, I got to do what I got to do to learn this stuff. And like, I'm not interested in this. Mm-hmm. And now it, I realized that like, there are a lot of different people, a lot of different learning styles, and we have got to provide for the people that learn traditionally too. And uh, I've just, I, 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 I just maybe realized the error of my ways a little bit. So in bringing it back to this idea of what has the evolution been, how have you been tra- transformed? Uh, used to be very anti-establishment, anti-systems, processes, procedures, and now you're mm-hmm. starting to realize to scale something that you'd need them. Well, and and it's so. I mean, God, I feel this is like a therapy session. Like I feel I like, get that all the time, man. But but it's <laughs> like, but there's also the idea of like, you know, I'm we've scaled because 
it's been fun mm-hmm. and it's been like about providing opportunities for people. And sometimes there, you know, there, I, I, well, I probably wasn't designed to run a company, like a large company. Like that's not, that's probably, you know, if I'm being honest with myself, that's not kind of how I'm, how I'm made. And so there is part of this where it's like, at some point this thing like grows beyond my skill level mm-hmm. and, and I'm trying to be self-aware enough to like understand that. And so at some point, I'm not sure how much lar- how much larger will scale or not, but I do know that I chase things that I'm interested in. And so I can't imagine a world in which we don't continue to grow a little bit because I want to keep myself engaged. Mm. And the opportunities are going to keep coming and you're going to be open. And the more you do, the more it com- like the, as mm. you grow, the opportunities just keep coming. Well, yeah, we've learned some good and bad. Like, you know, I mean, like we certainly have something out at the airport where someone else runs it and that's, then that's challenge. Yeah. I saw a walking, like literally like I didn't, it, because I knew I was talking to you, like you were mm. on, on my mind and I, I was like, Oh, I didn't know that you were. The pandemic there. was particularly hard out there. Yeah. I mean, it was like, no, nobody was traveling. Yeah. I mean, no one was traveling <laughs> yeah. and it's like, you know, we built a culture where we had time, you know, like so much of this is like about having bandwidth. Right. Yeah. And like, we could have a whole discussion about like how you use your bandwidth and like making sure that that bandwidth is actually for things that pay you and, and, and where you're using it appropriately versus the things that you're passionate about, Yeah, you know, but I have a tendency for better or for worse to fill my bandwidth with a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'm like, man, like I just did this because I wanted to do it. And now, you know, and now I got to keep doing it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I I'm very, I mean, I'll be honest and transparent. Um, we have restaurant unstoppable network. Mm-hmm. And when I started that, it was out of a reaction to the pandemic. I wanted to be traveling. I wanted to be on the road and I couldn't do that, but I was like, I got to do something. And I always wanted, I love the idea of community, but, and I love the idea of bringing people together and connecting my listeners with the people who I'm getting on the show, but also the tools, services, mm-hmm. uh, like the technologies and like the actual, the experts that my guests are recommending. Mm-hmm. Like how cool would it be to have a space where I just connect all this stuff. But then you get into it and you start doing it and you're like, I have to sit at a computer all day to do this. I don't like sitting at computers. Yeah. I didn't start this podcast to like, to like, to moderate and constantly be like communicating and typing and like sharing. Like I was like, this isn't me. Yeah. It's um, not what you want to do, but I still value, you know, so it's, it's a matter of like, you got to be careful what you do because you don't want to create a job for yourself. Well, and, and, and that's the thing, right? Is there's like, I guess what we're both saying in our very roundabout fashion is that there's like desires yeah, and what you want to do and what you can do. Yeah. Right. And it's like, uh, and I think that that's like a really important distinction in life in restaurants in general is like, there's like, there like there an infinite amount of things that you could do, mm-hmm. but there's not everything that you can do and do well. Yeah. And, and that is one of our like guiding principles is like, Hey, we could do it, but should we do it? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a really valuable question to ask yourself is like, is it a valuable use of your resources to do this? Yeah. Do you still want to do it in six months? <laughs> yeah. That's well, a good, like put like sit on it for a second. Yeah. I need to start asking myself that question. <laughs> yeah. But one thing I want to get out of you, um, before we move on to the speed round and start to wrap sure. this up, uh, is that, what is that balance for you? What systems are critical and where, where do you find 
Like, what is that sweet spot of systems and chaos? What are the core systems that you have? Well, and I, God, I'm going to do give you another round of an answer, and I'm sorry no. in advance. So, the your life as a as a human changes all the time, right? And so, I had to start putting more systems in place because as I had a family and as that, and as those personal commitments, things that I really want to do and I really want to be there for my family, as they have gotten more intense, I have to use my time more wisely, Yeah, which means that my systems have to be better. Mm -hmm. And so it has really been about survival to put systems in place. You got to recreate yourself. Yeah, exactly. If I'm not there, are these things happening? Because ultimately like, I am responsible for my happiness. I am responsible for my emotional well-being, and I have got to take ownership over that. And if I do not, and I don't want to look around one day and be like, "Man, I'm not doing what I want to do. I'm not. I'm not happy. I don't have my. I don't have my priorities right for me. I really wish I'd been at the at the house, you know, with my you know with my eight year old daughter on this night when she was doing her homework, rather than you know plunging a toilet." And so like, there's just, and that's not to say that it works out all the time, but like, I have to have a plan to be able to do the stuff I want to do. Yeah. And that's not to say that I'm a better operator because of that, but I have to find that balance Yeah. because it's critical for my personal survival. Yeah. And I think this is where the system dependent operation, not people dependent comes into, because mm-hmm. if you want to scale, if you want to do other things, if you mm-hmm. want to feed your soul, you can't be locked into one business all day. You have to recreate yourself in systems and processes. Correct. Or and, recreate yourself in others. And and, and look, and that's and, and just to be full and, and I would tell my partners this too, like I if if it came down to my happiness, like I would I would sell my shares and everything else except for cure. Mm. Because it's still it's still where my heart is today. And that doesn't take anything away from the work that we do at our other places. Like I love them and I think they're great. And I love the teams at those places. But like, if I had to like put a list of priorities in place, like this is where my heart is. Mm. Like this was my dream. And because of that, it's the one thing that I could never really let go of. Yeah. They take it out of my dead, cold hand. Yeah. But I think there's something to be said about a lot of your other concepts. They might not be your dream. They're someone else's. Exactly. And you created that opportunity for the people to help you make your dream come Mm -hmm. true. And you have to reciprocate. If somebody helps you make your dream come true, Mm -hmm. you got to turn around and be like, okay, now it's your turn. Well, and it's like so, you know, it's so fun for me to be part of other people's dreams, right? And it's like fulfilling. And, and I, and I love that part about doing it. Yeah. Um, and, but there, but, but there are times where, where I in, in uh, I find myself at a, like you know we're getting ready to launch the Cure Book, which is really about community. I mean, like it's about all the people that have worked here over you know thirteen and a half years that have put recipes together. I mean, there's so many people that didn't even make the book. It's like I wish I had I could double the size of the book. And it's about this community of New Orleans and what makes it special. And you know, I think it it just there's so many people that have made my dream a reality that I want to help other people make their dreams a reality. That's what it's and, all about. But there are also times where I want to do things for me. Yeah. And, and, and the book is one. And then, and sometimes I just like, sometimes I just want to be down and I want to go to a cocktail tasting downstairs and I want to throw myself into this place. And, and I want to be able to do that too. Yeah. 
I, I have to hover over this. Um, you talked about a big mistake you had. One of the restaurants was a big mistake. I can't remember which one it was. You know what I'm talking about? What? Bywater? Yeah. So, so Cafe Henri. Yeah. Which well, we named after my dad, which I really didn't want to do because, you know, you know that there's risk in this. And I remember the hardest part about closing that restaurant was, was calling my dad up and be like, Hey, we got to close this restaurant. And he was put, like, we're putting you down, dad. Yeah. And he was just, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Basically like, Hey, 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 we're going to put you down. And, um, and it, but it was so funny because it was not like, I don't, ultimately, I don't know why we named that restaurant after him. And I, it was and and it, but it was, it was weird because I felt like I may have even like cursed it. it. Well, yeah, but also like, and it was like a little more personal yeah. because of that. And 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 I really wish that we hadn't named it after my father mm. because it was it, it was it was harder to do what we needed to do. Now I will say what's really fascinating. I mean, we could devote an entire podcast talking about how we fucked up this You're restaurant. Welcome to come back anytime, yeah. my friend. If you want to talk about your fuck Thank ups, you. please. Um, <laughs> but you know, it was. I'm not going to go into all of it, but distill the, the core takeaway from the core takeaway is that we just, we, we moved too fast. We could not agree on a common vision. Mm, that's a lesson right there. Why is that so important to have a common vision? And look, that's not to say that on any of these things that people don't like their visions don't diverge a little bit, mm-hmm. but like, we that's a challenge in partnerships is you have to find a win-win. You have to find the balance of shared. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so I think that we, because of the fact that we couldn't, it just never felt cohesive. And then we had this idea of what we thought the neighborhood was that we were going into and what we thought the neighborhood needed for services. And the neighborhood was changing and we didn't know. And so we just weren't plugged in enough in the neighborhood. Too to, much service, not enough service. So it was, it was during, it had, it was a really, and it's a great neighborhood and it's, it's, it's down in Bywater and we just didn't understand the time. It was going through this time where a lot of people that live there were moving and a lot of the properties were becoming Airbnbs. And so we thought it was a neighborhood with a really bustling, um, you know, of repeat customers, but yeah. Much- and so we, and so we, so we kind of, put together this idea about a restaurant where nothing would be over Compton's restaurants here, right? Yeah. I think she got into this yeah. in her episode. Well, and, and so she's now down in, in, in Bywater and she's a little, a little further in, uh, in Bywater. She's got Bywater American Bistro, which yeah. is, which is wonderful. Yeah. And, um, and so when, uh, you know, we, we had this idea where we were like, look, it's an up and coming neighborhood. Like let's do everything. $16 and below uh, on the menu and just have this a place where people come like one once twice a week. Like it doesn't have to be perfect. It just needs to be like a great neighborhood spot. You're banking on regulars. We were banking. We were banking on volume, volume. and regulars. Okay. And on some level it was because the neighborhood was going through a massive transition with Airbnb. And on some level we just didn't execute well enough and we didn't, and our idea wasn't sound. And then we brought, our current partner, Alfredo Noguera down from, from, from uh, Chicago. And I mean, we had to make some very difficult decisions. I mean, we, we had to, to, to start over in the kitchen and we did that right around the holidays, which was not, not easy. Mm-hmm. And, 
but it was right for the restaurant and we did it. And I'm telling you that restaurant from the time that he took over until we closed it was fucking awesome. I loved it, but it was terrible business Mm. and it was just hemorrhaging money. And in the end we had to, we had to close it or else it would have brought down our other businesses. And so had I not, this is where life gets really weird, right? Um, my wife recommended that I call my friend Gary Solomon, um, and who I did not know well at the time. And Gary, and she was like, she was like, look, Gary has been in a thousand businesses. Like you should call him and just, and just get some outside perspective. And I called him. It's amazing what that can do. And, and he pinned and he gave me an hour and a half of his time. I found out later, first of all, he's a really busy guy. And like to get an hour and a half of his time was like, and I know how I feel. <laughs> well, but it was like, but it was, it was crazy. Yeah. Like he never should have given me an hour and a half yeah. of his time. And he didn't know me well enough. Right. You're, you're preaching to the choir, my man. <laughs> and so, and so he does. And he, he told me recently he was in Australia when he talked to me. I'm like, dude, what, why, like, why would you take the time at 2 AM? <laughs> yeah. And just like, and, and, and he, and he gave me, and he gave me like really great advice. And he was like, and he asked me all these questions like, do you think it'll turn around in six months and three months and you know, a year? And I was like, I don't think so, man. Yeah. And he was like, and he said, look, then you've got to close it. And I'm yeah. going to give you some, he's, he's like, I'm going to tell you, I have a good friend who I gave the same advice to. who didn't take it. And they came back and they had lost like millions of dollars and it really, and, and they, they were in a position to do it. But like, I'm telling you, don't sacrifice your success you got it. You got it. You, you got to cut bait on this and yeah. live to fight another day. Yeah. So I needed to hear it. And then eventually we would come together to take over tales of the cocktail. Yeah. Had that, I really think that had Gary not given me that advice that, that we never would have done tales of the cocktail together. Yeah. yeah. And I think when you're starting a new concept, you got to ask yourself, am I willing to float this for a year and a half to give it the time it needs? And if you have a, massive i don't know how many seats was this restaurant you said it was hemorrhaging money it was too small too small so you you couldn't do the volume you needed we couldn't do the volume that we needed the neighborhood couldn't at the time we didn't think it could support a higher dollar restaurant uh i think it could i think it can now yeah um it was just the timing that we were there and 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 since we had started one way and then changed something else it just it, it just we just didn't get it right yeah but i mean again i think people need to realize like if you're batting 500, you're doing amazing in this industry, right? And, uh, and you learn so much from that that it only galvanized, it only made you stronger. I certainly learn more from that business than than uh, than I uh, than uh, than you learn more from the failures than you do oh, from the for sure. from the uh, successes. Yeah, you don't forget those failures; they mm. hurt, man. No, um, no, they stick with you for forever. I I've loved this conversation. We're getting ready to bust out the speed round, but I do want to echo the mission statement to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. Uh, typically we talk about how you've transformed. We talked a lot about your transformation over time. I'm curious to get your perspective of where you think the industry is today and where you think we need to be and things instead of reacting. I think we're guilty of it as an industry of reacting to the consumer because we're constantly trying to please. We're trusting. We, we just want to be accepted. We just want to make people an, we're happy. an industry of people pleasers. Exactly. Right? But I think it gets us in trouble because we, we react to the consumer and it puts well, us in bad places. Psychologically, people pleasers get you, you know, get you in yeah, trouble. Yeah. You do it psychologically. So how do we move away from this place of reacting to being in a place of more proactive of this is where we are and this is where we need to be. And how can we, how can we so, go there? I think humanity has a problem. And I think that, 
we that it is the nature of people that we overcorrect and and we over you know like this isn't going well we're going to go 100% in the opposite direction yeah. like the, the the this industry is broken but it's not broken beyond repair and it it does it needs tweaks what needs to be tweaked so i think it starts with is this an industry where you can build a real a real career and can we figure out how to take care of people develop people is it an industry where you can build a real career currently some people can some people can't and it has to be more holistic is that the message it does it does it has to be a sustainable career and i think that one of the problems with this career is that and and and, and this is particularly true of bartenders um but i think it holds true to to every position is that there is it ages out and i think that there is a point where physically it becomes very difficult to do this work what do we do for the people in our industry that cannot physically do this work anymore. What can we do for the people in this industry that can't, you know, that can't make a living. They can't afford, if they get sick, they can't afford to go to the hospital. And that is something that we, the, the margin, you know, we've got the margins aren't there for that. So that's, that's the first layer that we've identified the problem, right? The markets yeah. aren't there. There is an opportunity. What needs to change in order for us to be able to do what we need to do to create long-term so, sustainability? For I people? mean, this is like something like it is, it's the thing that we, that we, that we all, anybody that loves this business, we sit and we, and, and we agonize about, right? Because like there is the cost of food. Yeah. There's the cost of drink. There's the cost of people. And I think that, if if I'm being real honest about it, Please. I think that there needs to be more technology and less people doing this, and we need to take better care of those people that are doing the work. Yeah, because we can't just throw people at problems and not pay them. Yeah. The next layer is what technology are you looking at to be ahead of it? What where are you focusing your growth, your evolution? Well, I, for, I, I'm talking about so there is where we need to go one day and yeah. there is where we, in, in, in where we go. I mean, obviously, um, we use, we use seven shifts, which I know is one of your sponsors. Love seven shifts. Thank and you. Seven shifts. Yeah. Thank yep. you. Seven shifts. Yep. Um, I wish I would have caught, caught your sponsorship ad before I signed up for seven shifts though, to get your discount. I don't get a, an affiliate for, Oh, you would have gotten discount. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But, but unfortunately I'm not smart enough for that. Yeah. Hey, um, if you guys are listening, make sure you're using those links, get those discounts. Um, we use a program called margin edge that I really, really, really like. And it makes me feel more confident as we're going into when you're going into a time where prices are moving around everywhere. Yeah. Um, and, and that's invoice management and, and, and just analysis. I mean, it does, it, it, it does a lot that it helps a lot I mean, a great POS, um, we use we use Lightspeed, which is not perfect, uh, I might add. And, and there are times where I want to throw up my hands. Yeah, but they're evolving pretty quickly. I know they are. They purchase Upserve, so they have so they that. did. So we yeah. so we used Breadcrumb, which became Upserve, yeah. which now has become Lightspeed. And 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 that's not to say with any of these acquisitions that it isn't hard, but um, you know now Lightspeed needs to invest to make sure that they're kind of staying. Yeah. Staying on top of it. I, mean, I love when I hear, I, I think Toast is a great company, but I would love to hear, I hate the idea of monopolies bubbling up. I mean, I mean, if you ask me, I think at this point from the outside looking in on yeah. Toast, I think Toast is superior technology okay. to, to Lightspeed, but I think 
hopefully Lightspeed has the resources to invest to, yeah. to upgrade. I mean, I will tell you this, when our contract is up, uh, I would probably move to toast at this point, but because Lightspeed has not just throwing it out there. Oh, all right. <laughs> um, so I'll keep that in mind. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and, and I think it's just, I mean, look, your POS is critical to how you do business. Mm-hmm. And you've, and I also think that it's just trying to find little things that you can do that make the people that you have that make their jobs easier and give them the bandwidth to go and to really be kind to people. Yeah. Beautiful. I have loved this conversation. It's One more quick break. break. We're going to thank our sponsors and we're going to bust out a true speed round because we're over two hours, man, but it's been a fast two hours. It goes by so fast. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially with this labor shortage. You need to rely and trust technology more than ever before. And dialing in your labor management is one of the most positive, dramatic impacts you can make on your business's bottom line. And when it comes to labor management, Seven Shifts is one of the most, if not the most, organically recommended labor management platforms on the show. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communication, tasks, tips, and more all from one place. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you're already using like toast to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. I don't need to tell you that it's harder than ever right now to be a restaurateur. The cost of goods are going up. Labor expenses are going up. People don't want to work in the industry. Anybody who had experiences has gone on to different verticals or different industries. And we are just stuck with a lot of people who are very green and how, how do we increase sales if nobody knows how to sell? Well, you empower them with the right tools. And one tool out there that you need to know about is called S. RV, which stands for Study Restaurant Variety, created by Roger Bodwin from Restaurant Rockstars, a name I'm sure you recognize for his multiple appearances on the show, and his co-founder and co-creator, Zaylin Jacobson, who you'll be working with. This is a tool that will help your team memorize your menu, your uh, your culture, uh, everything, anything you need to train them, your entire training manual is now in an app and accessible anywhere. And really what it is, is an interactive learning tool. And it's a great way to invest in your team and to make them feel valued. There's a lot of data supporting that. This is how the next generation of professionals prefer to learn. So if you need a tool out there to empower your staff, to train your staff, uh, to, to give them the knowledge they need to be sales stars, then check out srvnow.com click the link that says request a demo and 
That will bring you to a page where you fill out your information. The very last field, make sure you let them know that Restaurant Unstoppable sent you their way. They will pay us a commission of $1,500 if you use that link and you you sign up with them. And I just have to say thank you in advance. We're trying to take Restaurant Unstoppable to the next level. And this is one way we can do that by just spreading the word about these tools. And uh, I believe in what they're doing over there. So you're in good hands. Uh, thank you in advance. All right. Do it now. We're back, and the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Man, I thought you were supposed to make these things easy. <laughs> um, I think that I'm genuinely like people, and I think that I genuinely am interested in what makes people tick, and it makes me want to listen and I think that because I'm interested in people that I want to understand what makes people tick and it helps me in theory manage them. Yeah. I, I can, I so closely relate to that. I'm fascinated by people constantly learning. It's huge. I think that's the secret is understanding people. It's all about relationships. It's all mm-hmm. about understanding people and making people happy. The more you know about what makes them happy, the better you can serve them. Yeah, exactly. And it's like really, you know, it gets back to this idea of creating win-wins, right? Because like I want to know someone's goals and what makes them tick so I can help kind of make sure that they're in a good place to number one, do the work, but I also want them to be happy. Mm, Yeah. So much for a speed round. What's your biggest weakness? (laughs) (laughs) Organization. (laughs) What is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? Empathy. What is your biggest challenge today? Growth. How are you overcoming that? I'm not sure if I am. <laughs> uh, so when you say growth, are you talking, talking about growing your people, growing your teams or growing? Yeah, I mean, I mean all of it. Yeah. I mean all of it. It's, it's like just, it's yeah, it's just a scaling challenge. You know, we're just being organized enough and, mm-hmm. and getting and putting the processes in place that so that in the structures in place so that people feel supported when there's not an, it used to be that we, I was, you know, we were so connected and in, and as you have more stuff going on, you can't be there as often. And then it's just, you know, you've got to have the, you've got to have the organization and the process to, so that people know what, what to do, even if someone's not there to answer their questions in real time. What is one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team, a core value, a way to be? I really think it, and this is going to sound pretty corny, but it's the, it's the golden rule. Like treat, treat other people the way that you want to be treated. That's the reason why it's the golden rule. Mm-hmm. What is one uncommon standard of service? Something that you do in the four walls of your bars and restaurants that's common, but not common throughout the industry to go above and beyond. I think we probably do a little more comping than most people do. And we love to acknowledge people. Yeah. Do you fact, how do you do that and stay profitable? Do you work that into... Well, I, I mean, that's a good question. Sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. Yeah. And I really believe in the idea of like the amuse, uh, you know, a little something or like the the idea of lanyap, a little yeah. something extra. Yeah. And and maybe that's why I like it is because I feel like there's, it's so nice to acknowledge someone like, oh, you come in all the time. Like, you know, here's a little something extra. Yeah. And obviously you want to exhaust all your sales um, opportunities before you do that. Um, 
sometimes it's like a little something on the way in something, sometimes a little something on the way out. Yeah. I think it's huge. I think it's a very powerful way to show your appreciation. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I think where people go get in trouble with that is they don't track it or they don't factor it in. They don't, they don't account for it. Correct. Correct. And it was, was, yeah. Yeah. So we do. So, and, and it's also like, you know, I was a bartender. Like I watched, yeah things that I was like, woof, that's bad Yeah, over the years. And I realized that it was because people, we are wired to want to take care of our guests. And I think that it was about taking that stuff out of the black market of restaurants and putting it into the kind of real above board, like, Hey, I want to empower you to take care of your guests. And this is the way that we do that. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to think that you've got to go into the black market of this business to do that. Mm-hmm. Got and it. so it's about keeping everything above board. Got it. Uh, what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant operator? I mean, I know it's a cliche, but I mean, I, can I, can I finish your sentence. Yeah, go ahead. Dan Meyer saying the table. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I will say, I really like said Moses's book too. Yeah. Pouring with heart. Yeah. That's yeah. a great book, especially for the bar industry. Uh-huh. I think what he's doing is, is powerful. The yeah. message they're spreading. Yeah. Agreed. Do you know said? I do. Awesome. I was going to say, if you don't, please let me make the introduction, but no, of course he's great. Do. Yeah. He's great. He's awesome. Uh, what is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do well enough or often enough? So I think this gets back to a little bit of what we talked about earlier, but I think that we don't make time for ourselves is that you, that we're so busy running our teams service, you know, making sure our guests are good that like, there's not enough time for, for us and our desires. And I, I don't mean this in like, a, Oh, woe is me. I mean, this is like you, you to be successful and for it to be sustainable, you have got to have boundaries on yourself mm-hmm. in your time and as restaurant tours, as owners, managers, whatever your role is. And that doesn't matter if you're a server, bartender, a busser host. If you don't say, this is what I need to be successful and to protect that no one's going to, no one else is going to protect it for you. What is one piece of technology you've recently adopted? That's had a huge impact on communication, efficiency and profitability. We already talked a little bit about technology. You can either echo that. Oh, or- um, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't say Slack. I mean, we, we, oh. we, we use Slack. Slack is huge. So that's a service that comes up a lot on the show. Mm-hmm. Why, why is that so powerful? So we, and we've been around long enough that we used to do it a little bit differently. We used to have this like free Google, you know, we, we got in very early on Google at what would become, you know, Google docs apps and, yeah. and docs. And so we had like, we would just like give everybody email addresses and we would do it on email groups and it was like, it worked, but yeah. like Slack is like, and, and maybe I'm just showing my age again, but like, I feel like I have to like really compose an email and mm-hmm. that's why I hate emailing. And like messaging, texting, messaging is just like, I don't care if I spell it right. I don't care. I mean, I do, but like, I, I it feels like information flows more freely. It's also easier to find, which mm-hmm. is the cool thing. Like emails, like scanning through an email to try to find something, oh, like where the hell God. is it? And the way they organize it, it's just, it's so time consuming. But what Slack does great is it makes it digestible and easily mm-hmm. searchable and you can segment conversations and it's a powerful tool. Um, yeah. I would love to have Slack be a sponsor. Slack, if you're listening to this, a lot I mean, of restaurants are using your tools. Exactly. Come help us out. I think actually Jared's uncles work at Slack. So he's my editor. I'm trying to work. I'm getting Jared to work that angle. Um, all right. This is the last question. It's a doozy. Are you ready for it? All right. Let's go. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. 
all the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? The eye, the, the eye rolls I get asking this question sometimes. No, I mean, I, 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 I think it's an interesting question because, I mean, we don't get to choose our <laughs> legacy, obviously. Yeah. And there, there is what you think your legacy is, and there's probably what your legacy will be if you have a legacy in that like you didn't know is you totally were an different. <laughs> yeah, and I can't believe it. here lies an asshole, you know. <laughs> Um, but I think that there, there are a few things that I, that I would think about. Number one, I, and, and I, I don't know why I use this analogy cause I hate this fucking game, but like the restaurant business is golf. Mm. You, it doesn't matter what anybody's doing around you. It matters what you're fucking doing. Yeah. Right. And so like it, you, you've got to just be like. I can't control all the things in the market. I can only control what I do every day. Yeah. And so all the rest of it is just fucking noise. Yeah. So that's number one. So number two is that I think you have to treat people the way you want to be treated. Cool. And that's, it doesn't matter if it's guests, team members, whatever. And that's not to say, then that's not to say that we always do it because we're human and, and we're, you know, and, and, we're, and we're flawed. And then, I, and, and I think this kind of touches on this again, but I think it would just be like, be, be empathetic. Yeah. And, and I, and I just think that like treating everybody the way that you want to be treated is one thing. And I, and that, and that does get into empathy. Right. But it is also like, can you put yourself in someone else's shoes and be like, man, I wonder what's going on with them. Mm-hmm. And like, how can I like, and, and, and how can I meet them where they are? First seek to understand, then seek to be understood. Yeah. yeah. And then there's so much more like, obviously like you want to do your job well, like, and yeah. you want to like pay attention to the details and you want to, there's like a thousand things, but like to me to be successful in this business, like everything else, it doesn't really matter. Like unless you're making that like connection with you, with the people that come in and you're doing your damnedest to serve them, you know, and, and, and they're, and they're guests. Like, you know, one of the things that really drew me to, to work for Danny Meyer before I, um, before I did was that I read this book. It was before setting the table came out, um, where he talked about, you know, I had studied Greek mythology in this, in this idea of Zinnia and Zinnia was, um, was hospitality and, and it was in Zeus was the God of hosts and it was a very critical you know, hospitality is a very critical thing. And if you violated hospitality, you angered the gods, right? And even though this is a financial transaction that happens in this business, it is still a hospitality transaction. And hospitality can be violated. It is not a customer business relation. That is only part of it. It is a hospitality relationship. And Danny Meyer talked about this in a way, and I, and I really appreciated it. And so like it, it is a two way hospitality relationship and it can be violated on both sides. And I try and keep that in mind and I, and I hope that I'm able to teach that effectively. Yeah. 
I've loved this conversation. We're almost at two hours and 30 minutes of recording. Sorry. No, don't be sorry. If it was up to me, man, I would have every episode go this long, but we only have so much time of the day and the people I talk to are very busy. So we try to jam what we can in two hours and I'm so grateful for the two hours I usually get, but, um, I need to find out who the next person to talk to is going to be. So who do you respect and admire and believe I should get, get as a guest in this show? So that's what like kind of kept me up at night. Um, last night as I was like, I was kind of tossed and turned. I was like, you can man, who? call out multiple people, man. That helps. Well, but that's that like the thing is, is it's like, <laughs> it's like so many, there's so many people I respect and admire. And it's like, it just goes to show you like the amount of work that you could do in this business. Like yeah. there, everybody that I deal with has, you know, has an impact on me. Most of them positive, some of them negative, but like, you know, I mean, I, I talked to you about like talking to Adolfo Garcia, yeah. um, had Adolfo not come in and invested in two restaurants on Ferret street. I'm not sure if cure would still be here, but he's, he's been doing it for a long time. He's been a mentor to so many, so many cooks and so many people like me in front of house, yeah. um, in, in the city of new Orleans for so long. And I just think he is like a gem of a guy. Yeah. We were able to connect with him. He is out of town. Unfortunately, it was more mm-hmm. else. We would have been, we would have been interviewing him this week. Yeah. Um, you also connected us with, uh, uh with, uh, Brad, Brad, uh, yeah, Brad Gucher. Yeah. Yeah. And Brad would have been terrific. And hopefully you guys are able to talk to him because Brad just opened a restaurant, you know, he, and he did it in, in, in I mean, he's, he, he's in a point where I was a long time ago and it is really fascinating. Yeah to think about someone that's in that point, like first six months of their restaurant. Yeah. I can only imagine how up against it he is in this, yeah. in this market with the, the short. You think guys that have been doing it a long time. Don't have any time. Oh my God. Yeah, <laughs> dude, I can only imagine. Um, I, I imagine he's in it right now. Uh, he, he was with you with Canaan table, correct? So he worked at Val's too. Okay. So Canaan table and Val's. Beautiful. He was a, he was a bar manager at Canaan table and, um, and he was opening up, you know, during, during the pandemic, during the heart of the pandemic, he um he moved over to Val's with us because there just wasn't Canaan tables in a, it was in a tourist area and Val's was in was in a residential area and was growing and we needed great people and luckily Brad stepped in during that time while he was working on his business. Yep. Aldolfo, Brad, look out guys, I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the I show. mean, look, I, there are so many it, it depends like name a city and I can give you like ten people who I admire and respect who you should talk to. At you least. might have just. Or, I'm gonna I'm gonna reach out to you a lot now because I'm constantly All looking right. for people, man. I'm gonna take you up on that offer. Challenge we're just accepted. Good friends. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, man. This has been a lot of fun. If we're interested, we gotta make sure we plug your book one more time. Uh, if we're interested, in maybe coming joining your team. How can we connect it? Also, where can we find your book, which isn't available as we're recording this, but when I think it might be available. So so October 25th is the launch date. Okay. It won't be quite available yet when this goes live, but it's going to be on the radar. Yeah, and good. so and it is available. And I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't say this. It is available for pre-sale. Got it. Um, and that's Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your local independent bookseller. Um, we have signed copies that are that we're doing pre-sale through Garden District Books uh, in New Orleans, and they're they're online. Uh, and it is Cure New Orleans Drinks and How to Mix Them. Yeah. Um, and that is a nod to Stanley Clisby Arthur's. 1937 work where you start to see the new Orleans cannon go, go down for the first time cocktail cannon. That is, I will be getting a copy of this book. Um, 
I wish it was available now or so I'd have you sign it. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll make sure you get a sign. Oh, that would be amazing. Uh, I just can't say thank you enough, my, my friend. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Hey, I don't know about that, but I'm going to keep trying not to be. <laughs> Cheers. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable Podcast. Special thanks to our guest today, Neil Bodenheimer. And what I loved about today's episode is how... If you want to make change in your community, if you want to regenerate your community, don't look around for other people to take the initiative. It has to start with you. If you want to see change, you have to get in there. You have to roll the dice. You have to take the risk. It all starts with you. And I love what Neil has done for for his New Orleans communities where his restaurants and his bars are. Uh, amazing things. Amazing things happening there. Honor to make an example of you. And... Uh, Super excited for your, your book to come out. So if you guys want to get your hands on that book, be sure to head over to Amazon. Uh, they are doing the pre-order now. Uh, you can get a hardcover for $29.99. It's Cure New Orleans Drinks and How to Make Them. Awesome stuff. Go get it. All right. So lots of cool things happening here at Restaurant Unstoppable. We decided our next trip is going to be to the, we're calling it North Midwest, Detroit, and Chicago. Lots of opportunities there and we're looking for leads. So if there's somebody in Detroit or Chicago, maybe that's you. Somebody we need to make an example of. Shoot me an email eric at restaurantstoppable.com. I'd love to hear your perspective and who you think we should get on the show. And I need to let you know we're bringing Restaurant Unstoppable Network back. Even though it technically didn't really go anywhere, we're going to be leaning into it again. We're going to be putting more energy into making sure there's regular events happening. And uh, the first event we're bringing back on top of coffee with eric because we've been doing that uh we never stopped doing that but we're going to be having uh two new sessions ask a pro where basically we're going to have two pros that we know and respect it's not official yet so i can't announce that uh but they're gonna make themselves available once a week uh in two different hour blocks i think is the plan and you can ask them anything uh you can literally come on ask them anything and uh I mean, I think that's super valuable to have access to one of these individuals. And we're also going to have a peer. So somebody in the network is uh, a restaurateur who's going to make themselves available. Just if you need somebody to talk to who understands to join the network, head over to restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com and join the conversation. Uh, so super cool things happening at Restaurant Unstoppable. Also got to say special thanks to Jared over at Sumadre Podcast and Sam at SavinSam.com for helping me make this podcast possible. That's it for today. Until next time. Peace out.